This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former Australian SAS operator and the founder of Warrior Refit Foundation, Nicholas Seedsman. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Nick's early life, his journey into the military, his perspective on war, TBI, autoimmune disease, stem cell therapy, psychedelics, the creation of his own nonprofit, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nicholas Seedsman. Enjoy. Nick, I want to start by saying thank you to Jesse, who we will get to, but for connecting us today. And I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks, mate. Pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks, Jesse. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? Today, I'm in, uh, I'm in Rome, Italy. Now, obviously, based yeah. on your accent, that's not where you're originally from. So I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay, so 
I was born um, in Campbelltown, Australia, which was an area of Sydney in the south. Before it turned to the proper ghetto, it was a little bit more South Sydney country-ish. And um, I've come from two very great, like, grandparent sets, like really good matriarch patriarchs. Um, and I was blessed to have those two. Got like well, four, I should say, but there are. They're remarkable. So, and then parents met in school. They married. They spent almost like a lifetime together before they'd even had the children. And then um, they had us. And my brother's three years older than me. I was about four when they got divorced. And we they went their separate ways. Um, and then basically I moved, or my mother who I was living with moved to Newcastle, which is north of Sydney, three hours north. And my father eventually, like a year or two later, moved to Brisbane. Uh, and that was when I was about 10. So the family was a bit split. I only got to see my father and have the influence of him growing up uh, from about the age of, uh, up until about the age of 10, kind of pretty regularly. Then it was every three months, you know, for school holidays per se. Um, and yeah, and then I, my mother remarried when I was about, um, I guess 12-ish, 10 or 12, somewhere around there. And my father remarried when I was probably about, I think, eight or nine. And they're still both married. And those relationships have really uh, influenced my my childhood and the man I became, right? And now really seem to understand pretty well the influences of those who raise you. So I know I was listening to you on one of the other podcasts, um, and I wish I could remember the name of it. I'd give them credit. But you touched on having uh, a lot of homicide detectives in your extended family all the way back to, to grandparents. So firstly, talk to me yeah. about you know what you saw as far as them through your eyes and if there were any kind of like career cases that they were on. Yeah, so my father was a homicide detective, and he's pretty famous um in in new south wales um he seems to be what all the legal students study um and also what the homicide detective study and you won't get that out of him but you get that out of my grandfather who was a homicide detective um himself and so was my uncle all three of them were pretty pretty well-known homicide detectives in that in the state um he had a significant in what really destroyed the marriage was I think my father started becoming cold. He was really good at his job. And if you become really good at your job in the services, you get the shit, right? Um, and I could probably touch on that with my stepmother. She was one of the first females to enter the police force and she cared about kids. And that became pretty obvious very early when she was very young. So they gave her all the child cases going, oh, you're a woman. You, you really, you'll be really good at this. They gave her all the abuse victims and that influenced the way she raised her children and the rest of her life. Um, she's a great woman. And uh, my father, with my mother, started becoming probably a bit too close to some of the cases. Like he was renowned for getting them done. There was only one that he, he never actually got closed, or like prosecuted. He got into the court and everything. He just couldn't. Uh, he said this man believed his own lies to such a degree um, that it was just impossible to catch him in any in any fashion. Like he truly thought that he was innocent in every every fashion in many ways. Um, 
and I think he might have been that guy might have been caught later eventually. So it likely would have been him was almost certain. Um, he started leaving um, some some pictures of the you know as he worked on the desk at home, living room table and whatnot. Um, taking phone calls constantly throughout the night and being available. He started leaving some photos and shit around of this woman that had been raped and murdered and getting really attached to the cases to such a degree it pretty much destroyed that the love in the marriage and the household um, completely. So that was an early day and then he started exhibiting signs of stress and then there was eventually he caught, he was chasing down this this one guy um, in Sydney following up with his partner and then they were in like a almost like a main street of, of one of the suburbs. And then anyway, he started getting shot at by semi-automatic rifles, which were legal at the time in Australia. And as a police officer, it wasn't legal, I guess, at the time, or, or it wasn't, they just commonly carried like a shotgun or a rifle in the back of their car. So he was in the main street, caught out by this guy shooting at them. Basically for, I think it was over an hour, um, while they just kind of, behind the tires of the cars copping rounds like apparently the the car is was riddled with bullet holes riddled like proper inside it through both ends and all they had was like a snub nose and they were like you know they'd shoot back you know provided there was no one in the background um but you'd still have people that were on looking so it made it almost impossible to even take shots just to stop this guy from shooting or stop him from advancing on them so it was like a nightmare scenario. And after that, uh, apparently, from all accounts, the stress levels were a bit too high from all those objectively observing um, that it was, you know, you, you might need some some help. So he went through a bit of a journey there on, um, on a you know, a, a bit of, a, I guess, sort of what you would now call PTSD or something like that. Um, yeah. And so he'd, he'd walked that path for the family. And the family had still had their fair share of... Uh, the adventure of the services, I'd say, at least on that side. Well, this is the thing, you know, you hear the negative uh, talk about first responder jobs and the, the impact on our, our relationships, but this this is because these people are trying to do the right thing. And, you know, when you do care, I mean, we don't bring our work home so much in the fire service as far as cases that we're studying or anything, but obviously we bring home the calls between our two ears. But there is, you know, I, I witnessed in some of, uh, you know, my fellow firefighters and police officers, you get that compassion fatigue because I think the body is so overwhelmed by the trauma that we're exposed to over and over again. It's a coping mechanism. And the problem is, you know, you, as we'll get to transition from deployment in the military, you know, it, it's X amount of months overseas and then, you know, X amount of months here. Well, a lot of these first responders, I mean, it's every 12 hours, 8 hours, 24 hours that we're having to switch back and forth. And, you know, if if you don't, if you're not fortunate to be given some of the tools to be able to take that pause, that line becomes blurred and all of a sudden now, what was the very reason that you went into the the profession, which is your family, I mean, family first, now all of a sudden the job starts grabbing hold of you and, and the family becomes second without you even realizing it. Yeah. Yeah, it um, it definitely and it definitely left its mark on my mother. You know, we have never seen it a little like understood that she got the concept of she's a very smart woman. She got the concept of the police force and, and everything that was going on. But I remember as I got older, 
he was content with signing me up as like an infantry officer, something like that in the army. But she was like, I would lay down in front of oncoming traffic if you decide to try to join the police. So the damage, the relative understanding of the seriousness of each situation was only so far in each job and role. But she was damn well aware that the police would probably break me, like it, you know, broke the father and broke the family and so on and that. Like she the damage had been pretty well lived by her in some capacity as well, right? Did you say it was your mother or stepmother that was uh, doing the child cases in the police? My mother was a was a school teacher, and then eventually became went up to the the positions of deputy headmaster and headmaster, and then then she was in charge of multiple headmasters and schools in the district, and then she was in charge of training and advanced education and all this sort of stuff, and rose through pretty seniority in the in the state schooling system to. A, of education to a like pretty, like I don't know how many more positions other than the, the minister might have been higher than her at that by the end of her career. My stepmother, um, who was in the police force, who I guess dad and her just understood each other and what they were going through. Um, and she, for sure, um, she she was the one who got all the, the child abuse cases and everything. That one was pretty, that she's got, the crazy thing is she's got, she's one of the people studied by the, by New South Wales uh, legal students as well when they're going through law school. It's, it's crazy. The two of them were kind of like a match made for that, really. They'd seen their fair share of shit before they were even 40. Well, you touched on the fact that that shaped the way that she you know, raised you as well on, on in her part. I saw within myself the one pull of wanting to wrap your child in, in cotton wool because of all the horrible shit that we see. I mean, my son's about to get his driving license in about two months time now and then he's going to be off driving which is going to be a fucking nightmare <laughs> at first you know just trusting him but I've, I've invested a lot of time teaching him so you know you could see how someone who's working in those cases could be pulled all the way to being overprotective what was it that she ended up yes. doing how was it how was it impacting her raising of oh, you guys that, it was so i grew up with my mother and my stepfather um many unresolved childhood issues himself for sure right like a gross amount uh so he, he would take out all these insecurities on the weakest member of the family which was me i was the youngest of my brother and i and unopposed so i, I just thought that was normal and acceptable behavior um it was basically just straight up uh straight up bullying per se um so when my dad eventually found out about this is pretty fucking like angry right and he gave me the option to live in his house or my or or remain he's like you know I, I i don't want to take you from your mother that's cruel to her but at the same time you deserve not to be in this environment 100 and fuck that and uh because the overprotection was so um intense I actively knew at that age of probably like 14 or 15 that I would rather have liberty and grow up the rest of my remaining years in a house of being mercilessly like kind of bullied daily. Um, that's however protecting she was like, it was like, it was over the top and it's for sure um, on the kids and we're all products of our experiences. So I have no attachment to 
any of this anymore as I've as I've I've aged, other than understanding myself and what kind of a father I would be. And we all probably know now um, because of the internet, everyone's just a bit more open and transparent. The effects that overprotection has on children, like Jordan Peterson sums it up very well in 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 a lot of his talks. You know, it's just you disadvantage the child. Uh, significantly because they never really had to face ad- adverse, like adversary conditions, um, you know, through small, medium or large that in their developing years so that their first real encounters with it are kind of almost too great for them when they're older and they, they kind of crumble, right? You've really just built a house of cards. Um, it's, it's, it's nothing substantial. So that there and, who could blame her, right? But at the same time, I suppose it would—it should have been my father's role to stand up against such things. But then again, what has he seen? Wouldn't have been the first time that he's seen. He's got a, a daughter, a, another daughter, and a son with my stepmother. Seeing an age difference, and the daughter he's seen countless uh, rape, murder victims of basically very young women extremely young women um, or may, you know, I'm, I don't know. I haven't really sat there and gone into it and do, into epic detail with him because I get it. No, I don't want to sit there and just relive that shit. So but he probably doesn't either. And, uh, and just talking about all that, he's probably overprotective and sees, yeah, maybe this is definitely better than the alternative might be too much, but it's definitely better. And I think, uh, I think that household there was, it was forever, affecting of those kids um, and definitely affected myself in my decision to in the direction I went with, with my life when given it kind of that ultimatum. Well, I want to get to your kind of journey into the military, but just before we do, what about sports and athletics? I mean, you ended up in a, a high-performing tactical athlete position. What were you doing school age? I, um, I was a bit of a interesting kid it's, it's worth probably noting so i started running in athletics when i was very young mother was a runner and so probably like maybe 10 maybe even younger i started doing my first like cross country as i'd call it which is basically like going for a three to five k run in through up and down hills and in the woods and i got i got i was pretty good at it i wasn't great and then i got really into sprinting and the 400 meters and all these things and i was kind of a like I like to just do everything. Um, long jump and all these things were a bit more boring for me. And I was never really sure. I was just kind of like, give me a straight line, give me a give me a general direction and let me go. Go give it give it my all, regardless of how I would perform. I always performed pretty good. Um, but I also got into cricket, soccer or football. Um, the one with just your feet for the Americans. Hence the name. And Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, and uh, and I got into that. And then when I got into high school, I did less of the running and more of just every sport I could kind of get involved in, all of them, just bloody all of them. It was like, and I had a pretty good group of mates like that that were, you know, they weren't exactly going to be. They were kind of larrikins, jokers, troublemakers, funny, but not to the point where they were making so much trouble that they were like an absolute nightmare 
to the teachers like they were like jesus christ the teachers were scared or they were like you know you, you know they were going to be in prison when they're older it was just kind of like you know a bit of jesting fun and we get into trouble every now and then and so on and uh, and we those guys were all interested in different sports so it was more for the adventure of it all and the journey of you know getting a little bit getting a bit in trouble but not you know full retard where i ruined my parents life sort of thing <laughs> it's like they're like nick just did crack none of that so we uh we, we would do a different sport every every three months we'd all like kind of band together we'd like could be doing volleyball for three months um and then we might be doing cricket then we might be doing soccer then it might be football it might just everything right which kind of gave me a really broad use of my limbs um in different environments and gave really good early situational awareness i wasn't and don't get me wrong i wasn't wasn't great but just the coordination across those sports and the understanding of the rules and being dynamic to rules um mentally was was very rewarding and and, and probably key to my development something i've heard a lot from high-level athletes from high-level coaches is that multi-sport athlete is just more resilient i would argue mentally and physically because you know in the u.s i guess the the pitcher the baseball pitcher is a, a prime example you get this kid that's throwing balls thousands and thousands of times and by the time they're college age they've just destroyed their shoulder but you get the guys that you know guys and girls that truly love sport and they play two or three different ones with as you said different rules which is another interesting thing i hadn't thought about different planes of motion you know different you know whether it's a, uh, a highly aerobic sport maybe more explosive and now you've given this child not only the the multiplanal ability with their body but also you haven't burnt them out on one sport where you've driven them into the ground yeah yeah and, that, and that's it i think it's they're still kids, right? They're still developing early. Um, they they still don't know what they want to do, and you want to give them a broad spectrum across all those. Um, and I think it's important for them to enjoy it as an adventure and get distracted in the adventure of it all, especially in an age where kids are becoming much softer and I, I and i think people have always said this generationally but really not until the tablets and the telephones and the electric bikes now like had had that you know like people would be like oh you know back in my day we'd be walking 20 miles to school and like you know you're catching a bus you're like yeah but like kids still run around exerting their energy on the football field they're finding a way to keep themselves entertained because they didn't have screens and i think i just started seeing the first generation here as i'm in europe because they're a bike culture where they've got electric bikes now and, and, and it's made me realize it's like oh like you're not even really using your legs to walk between gaps of in, in between those uses of the telephone right like it's got a pretty um different culture um now and I, and I think it's always going to be changing but it's getting to the point where obviously it's disturbing adults and i think it's now influencing children for the next generation, almost they're going to become adults with their hands held behind their back physically in, in many ways, like good luck. Um, you, you And you don't know what you don't know. So there it's, it's going to become a bit, um, yeah, a, a bit different. But for me, it was, you know, it was a, it was a blessing. I think getting involved across all these things. What's sad to me is obviously you've got the, 
clearly obvious obesity, especially in the US. And uh, I don't know about Australia, I haven't been there for a long time, but um, certainly in the UK, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Every time I go home, it's looking more and more like here. Um, but then you have the other side where even some of these kids aren't overweight. They just have no muscle tone and their spine is already starting to be distorted. And don't get me wrong, there are some phenomenal kids that are in great shape, arguably better shape than a lot of us when we were young because we really understand strength and conditioning. So I do, I do believe that there's, a, you know, the other side, which is these excellent athletes, but it breaks my heart because that inactivity is breaking people down and therefore their ability to do some jobs is being removed from them and their longevity is, is being just hacked to pieces. And, you know, people talk about it a lot. This is the first time that their parents are actually expected to outlive their kids, which, I mean, if that doesn't shake us to our core, especially after a two-year pandemic where health is supposed to be at the forefront, then, you know, I, I just, I find it maddening. It's pretty, and that's like, if that's a real considered and factored statistic of a, of science to say that the parents may live they lately when it comes to science have been really bubble wrapping the fucking edges you know so i don't know what that looks like in the future for everyone to be honest i, I mean that that's that could be like an understatement um and no doubt it's caused like i can't go to a grocery store and and find like anything in a wrapper that doesn't have several ingredients and shit that I don't even know what it is. And then it keeps getting listed down the line. I'm like, I get to the third or fourth ingredient. I don't know what it is. And it keeps going another seven or eight more. And I, and even fruit is so distorted. Um, it's not even like normal. So it, and, and it derives from, from food. And they're now starting to understand the effects of seed oil as one of the biggest significant factors in in um the invention of seed oil aligns with like a direct correlation in a, a massive spike in in human like i guess deterioration and major health conditions and then the other one that was more equivalent to that was uh, it was like at the end of the 1800s or 1900s when food processing just became the norm um and they're like two really two really significant ones right so it's like the kids don't stand a chance because they're too young and it, it's supposed to be responsible adults making decisions for them. Right. And even the, the, even the results are drinking, the, the adults are, are drinking their monster or whatever. And it's just, I don't know. I think it's um the poor kids, right? Cause they're going to inherit all the damage. It's like the damage is done psychologically. They're kind of who they're going to be before they're seven, something like that, maybe even earlier. And then, Physiologically, they're kind of, you know, once you take once you take antibiotics and all this stuff, you're kind of compromised forever, um, and probably other things like that when they're young. And I, I just think that parents are now in the position where um, ignorance is bliss. Oh, we didn't know. It's it's so much easier to hide behind that we didn't know than just kind of like you know what, grandparents kind of stuck to like general organic foods because that's what it was at the time, and they stuck to things like maybe butter whole meats um simple old breads and fruits and vegetables and things and maybe there's something in that because it's like you know rather than finding convenience food and i anyway i just think the kids might be a bit screwed like i was very very 
extremely blessed growing up to eat these foods for dinner. My my mother, you know, it, it, I've had various health conditions, obviously, and I've got to be honest, my mother and my father, whenever they made they made it, they made a real meal with real ingredients, and I, I that probably did a significant uh, world of good for me for my future and who I am now. Like I, I, I probably wouldn't even be able to measure the difference because it'd just be immeasurable. And the next generation, I don't think they'll get that that shot. I think they just won't know what they won't know and they'll die early for it. Well, and this is why it's a multifaceted conversation. I grew up on a farm. I grew up where, you know, there would be my favorite pig or lamb that would disappear and all of a sudden the freezer was full. You know, it was that kind of upbringing. But also there was an orchard and there was a, a garden where we grew a lot of our food. Um, and then when you went to the to the town, there was the butcher, there was the baker, there was, you know, there was fish and chips. You know, I mean, you didn't always eat like a, you know, like you're on some, um, uh, you know, health food diet forever. But overall, 80% of what you're eating was really good food. And so this is the problem now is I see a lot of people that happen to be in good shape kind of pushing that kind of judgy message rather than going, I was lucky to be raised with all the tools to understand what it is. And to this day, I still cook from scratch, mostly. Again, I'll buy stuff that, you know, is already made and I'll throw that in the mix. But um, but you can't tell someone that grew up in Harlem, for example, who all they've known are the things that they bought for them, bodega around the corner, or, you know, whatever kind of dynamic it is, that to suddenly say, why aren't you making, you know, this from scratch? Some of these people don't even know what these fruits and vegetables look like in, in their original form. So it is on us to take away that judgment and then advocate to go back to 100 years ago where we weren't putting food into a factory. We weren't covering them with pesticides and filling animals with hormones and antibiotics. Food was simply food. And what drives me crazy is these carnivores and vegans will have these online debates where there's one truth remove the shitty processed foods oils you know etc carbs the the processed carbs you're going to end up with with a solid diet you want to have more meat awesome you want to have no meat awesome it's still the same common denominator middle ground common sense yep yep 100 and it's i and i feel that because there is a um uh, there is a there's a discussion around like plastic you think you know use of plastics and people are like oh you know us we're us use a lot of disposable plastic that's that's just interesting to the british empire we like if you ever go to the us the first time you're like the fuck is there, you guys these disposable bottles every time you want to drink a glass of water what's going on with you um but then you've got then you, you look at that and that's actually minute compared to some of the poorest parts of the and condensed squalorous parts of the world right in asia and whatnot people are like oh there's a garbage patch they're like really majority of this actually comes every single day down a river in in like major cities and condensed areas in Asia. Like, and they don't have the time or the money to give a shit about the future when they're surviving like meal to meal, not even day to day on like a paycheck or week to week on a paycheck or whatever. They're literally deciding like kind of meal to meal. They don't have time for that shit. And you think they stopped during COVID for all this, for, all, for the world as well? No, Christ, you don't get to stop. Oh yeah, sweet. There's a sickness out there. But also I don't have a, a meal in sight for the next several days so um i think the same thing goes when it comes to food like it's just not at the top of their priority when you're just trying to trying to get by and trying to survive and and trying to you know exist yeah i feel that i feel that and, and, and yeah and it's sometimes maybe it can be on the 
the high horse, but for those who have access to the internet and the capital in the first worlds to make those decisions and to voluntarily... Those in positions of responsibility, really, right? The influential responsibility, news anchors, whatever, everyone's kind of exposed to a news anchor, to social media or whatever, instead of spruiking dog shit, maybe it's something that you might want to dislike. Spruik, like, I really love um, that soccer player, uh, Ronaldo, is it? Ronaldo, where, you know, they put a Coca-Cola in front of him and he lifted it up and he, he put it away to the side and he's like, water, drink water. God knows how many kids that guy affected. That's that's human responsibility, right? That's straight up. Let the example of responsibility. It, it doesn't take much to just like point. He probably just point like several continents of children into a healthier direction that day alone. Oh, you know, my favorite soccer player, sports player in the world. Drinks this. Like those kind of influential decisions, right? To help those who don't don't know, maybe don't have access to that kind of kind of information. Absolutely. Well, I want to walk you through kind of the the um, journey to special forces. So, when you were in school, the school age, were you always dreaming of the military, or was there something prior to that? You could ask my fourth grade teacher when I was about ten, uh, maybe maybe even earlier, if I was going to go in the military. Like, if it came to studying war, like Gallipoli and Australian conflict, British British Empire conflict. Australia seem to be pretty well involved in. Um, then that that would captivate my attention. Like I, I I was, if you'd lived, you know, if you really under, if you considered the fact that you multiple dimensions and things and past lives was a thing for a moment, then I would for sure have lived several lives in this genre in some capacity because it just captivated me from a child and a kid. Like I cannot explain. It was so natural to me and it was so natural to me to understand tactics and strategy. Um, it was, it was ridiculous. It was, it was so, it was obvious to me. And um, I, I found myself in school, like, you know, drawing pictures of, of war and, and conflict. And, and I didn't have to study for exams when it came to history and war. Photographic memory, like 100%. It wasn't, it wasn't something that may... And if I did get the question wrong, it would have been like, well, no, that's the exact thing you, you wrote on the board that day. I could, like my brain could picture it, you know, and remember it like word for word. It wasn't a maybe, it was a for sure thing. And also, I, my grandfather was a... I had really great grandfathers, right? But one of them was truly the most remarkable man and example of a gentleman or a man that will that will ever live. Like I, I was blessed to, to have that. Both are outstanding, by the way, but one of them had a very much bigger part in raising me as the man, male, masculine example in my life. God bless. Um, he was just, I don't know if you could forge a better man by, by cultivation. It just, I don't know how that happened, but um, I mean, he would have long conversations about conflict and war and whatnot and the amount of education he would give me, whether we were playing chess or something like that or checkers or whatever we would play as kids when I was a kid. Um, he would just talk. We'd talk for hours about books and war and different empires and all this sorts of stuff, and it was just came such a natural interest to me. So it was almost – you could have asked anyone in school or any of the teachers 
And, you know, as my mother says, sadly, you've got kids that in school, she could meet them at day age five and she could be like, I wish I couldn't pick the kids that were going to be in prison when they're finished school or before they finished school. She's like, I wish I couldn't, but I can. And I wish I wasn't right all the time, all the time. And you could have done the same for me for the military. It what? was it was pretty much a sure thing. Sorry, mate, I didn't even step over you then. What did she see in those kids? Because that's something that we've already talked about, multi-generational trauma. You've got, you know, grandparents that were homicide, then pet then parents, and then you've got divided families. And here we are, and I think you know, argue a lot of us that are sent into uniform have these kind of stories, have these histories and backgrounds. What was it that she was seeing that a beautiful little baby at only five years beyond, five years of being exposed to their environment, she was able to see that they were already straying down the wrong path? I think it was evident neglect. It has nothing to do with the kids, right? It's, it's, it all stems from the parents. You, you monkey see, monkey do model yourself entirely off. You're a product of your experiences, right? Your experiences up to that age of coming to the first day of school are entirely based on emulating those around you. Like if we floated in space, you were born in space, floated in space, you'd think the world was normal to float in space and you'd emulate everyone else around you clinging like monkeys along the side of a NASA shuttle, right? That was that would be it. That would be it for sure. Like it was just when you see the neglect of the kids turning up and day in, day out without food, without lunch, without clean clothes, late because no one cared to bring them or even cared if they turned up on time or they might not have even even seen their parents in the last 18 hours since they left school i think that was that would be the defining factor the way that the language they used the way they interacted you know it's it's like rich dad poor dad right sort of thing it's like it's just the cards you're dealt kind of unless you're like the buck stops here on every capacity right there's no just threshold of good and bad kid a huge line, um, unless you've if someone's decided to actively end that line. It's kind of almost destined in a sense, right? Unfortunately, for a lot of these kids. Yeah, and I think it's such a an important thing to look at. And one of the phrases I heard somewhat recently that I adore is, "You don't say what's wrong with you; you say what happened to you." When you're looking at someone who's you know down that wrong path, whether it's addiction or homelessness or you know whatever, wherever they found themselves. The, the reverse engineering that we were all born a blank canvas, a beautiful little boy, girl, you know, whatever gender, if we're in 2023, um, child, <laughs> you know, and then and then life happens to you and you find yourself down a path. And then what happens a lot is you get to adulthood and all of a sudden you forget the humanity in that person and that person becomes a crack whore or a bum or all these horrible fucking labels that I can't stand people put on someone whose life was so painful that they 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 spiral down to that point. Yep. Yep. I've um I'm really big on practicing this no attachment in my life or to other people's lives or whatever. I don't have the expectation of them as much and don't get me wrong, I'm not perfect at this. You can get frustrated just from the military past of, and the, even childhood, but in the military. But it's like, I have no idea what someone went to. Like, if a parent, if you're both your parents are morbidly obese, um, honestly, and the child is only fed the same food they're eating, like, how am I? If you become fat in life, okay. 
Um, as far as I'm concerned, that's kind of a voluntary disability. And that's pretty blunt. So be it. Speak my truth. But if you're a kid that gets given that life, then that's an involuntary disability. He just doesn't even know any different, right? Like it, to him in the world, that was just so normal before he was like seven, like his, his hormones and his, 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 the complete chemical balance in his body for the things that he's trying to, his body's trying to process and live with. It just doesn't know any different, right? Kid almost doesn't stand a, doesn't stand a chance to be shaped by that world. I was just waiting. Are you looking like you had something else to say? <laughs> it was sad. Yeah, I did. I, I had, I had, I had something. To, I was going to say something about. I was going to say something about um. COVID, and I just don't know if it's it's going to it'll upset people. I'm not going to go full 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 crazy on it, so don't, don't worry. But one of the things I didn't know until I talked to my mother during COVID and the lockdowns, and this is where I I'm going to actively call adults fucking cowards. Straight up fucking cowards. So worried about protecting yourself. Don't get me wrong. I know you, you need to protect yourself to handle kids, but it, you know, most of the reason kids go to school is for welfare checking. Yeah, and actually, I had, I had, but probably what you're about to say. Some of my friends that are in that space said that the rep- the reporting went down, and therefore there were kids that were being subjected to abuse during COVID. Because the teachers were the only ones that actually usually could see the abuse and report it. They're trained in it. Like, like kids were going weeks without meals and shit. Um, in America alone, and you, like I didn't even know it was a thing until my mother pointed out, and I started looking it up. And there were stories of kids that were like the parents didn't know what to do with them, so they, what they do they they took them to the shed outside and chained them up until they were discovered like two weeks later. Like kids just weren't getting meals. Oh, that kid was chained up. He was like not fed. He was. It was like, oh shit, we've got some leftover McDonald's. Fuck, we forgot about George. Better take that out there with some Coke or whatever. It was like it was it was horrific, right? And that's to the parents that had whatever money that was able to buy McDonald's and give it to the leftovers to their kids when they remembered. Like it's just it was it, it's horrific. The the abuse, sexual abuse, parents the fighting of their parents in front of the kids, the which will create generational trauma and, you know, just watching that and thinking that's normal because the parents are stressed, not having money come in, uh, living in each other's proximity, the divorces, the neglect from not having the money to buy food, the sexual abuse that was going on uh, for the kids who, were, who would go to school to get away from that sort of shit. Um, and then they, the parents were worried about the repercussions of hitting and sexual abuse on children, of getting caught and reported by the police to the police. So now all of a sudden they don't have anyone that can report on them. And it's just like the whole, the flow and effect was, is probably not only mentally handicapped the generation to some degree, educationally, right, in many ways, but also through just trauma. And it was like, because no one wanted to, and, it did, and the worst thing was COVID. We knew COVID wasn't affecting doing anything to kids, right? Like it was pretty obvious. Like I, I think, I think you know, in, it was getting you know, the elderly comorbidity patients, comorbid patients, um, because everyone was so fearful, fear, right? It was letting fear govern their lives, and 
they sacrifice the next generation for it. And I just think it's uh no, that's that's it. That's I just I just I, I just think it's yeah, it was, it was pure self serving cowardice in many ways. I was going to say, and I think people could say, yeah, there was just cause. There was there was just cause until some point, you know. But there was some pretty evident um, information coming out at some point there, where it was just kind of like, well, maybe this thing isn't as catastrophic, or it, you know, like the people aren't like dropping like flies. The system can only probably take one or two percent of the population out before before our mono skilled system, our our system of um, globalization fails, right? The different parts, mines produced around the world to make a part that gets shipped around the world to repair the part in some other continent of their electric plant or desalinization plant or whatever. And those workers need to turn up, the technicians need to turn up, the dock workers need to turn up, the shipping people. All these people need to turn up for this stuff. And if you take one to two percent of the population out, the sudden the system doesn't really work anymore, right? And there the the plant doesn't get repaired, people don't have running water in their taps. Three days without water, by about day one, people are starting to kill each other for water. Um, it's like it, it probably wasn't the stress that everyone made it out to, to be initially, right? Like really dramatic. And I think there was some self-evident information there. And I, I just think so initially, yeah, but there was a point there early days where it was like, okay, maybe there needs to be um, some risk to the adults from the fear right just anyway I could, I could go into that one for for a bit and probably need to dance around it a little bit i think we're still we're still um censored maybe what we what we say in this world we, we still we love a good censorship so that's that, that's cool that's never been on the right side of history either right <laughs> like so that seems like a fun new future <laughs> well i think the one thing just touched on covid before we move forward the whole message was about the nation's health. And I think everyone at the very beginning, no matter where they ended up leaning later, was like, oh, this could be bad. Everyone locked down. Everyone took it seriously. Everyone did their part. And then slowly it started to, it was fucking awesome news. Like, hey, everyone, guess what? It's not as bad as we thought it'd been. That's not how it was portrayed to everyone. And everything that actually would build up health, immunity, mental health was taken away from people. So the beaches and parks and gyms are all closed. Don't be, you know, don't see your family. Don't see your friends. I mean, all these things that the sensationalism on the news, getting people scared, breaking down their immune system even more. But then you can get alcohol and fast food delivered to your house while you binge on Netflix. So this is what was so disgusting is it doesn't matter whether you thought the vaccines were the be all and end all. You thought the vaccines were going to make your fucking head explode. The middle ground was making people healthier. And that was never, ever the message. And after this thing finally kind of concluded, they were like, all right, back to morbid obesity and, you know, childhood diabetes and all these other things that we love to promote. So it was never about fucking health. And that's the thing that nauseated yeah. me. Yeah. No, no, no one's done anything, right? Like, no, we're, we're, it's fair to say we got worse and then let that set the standard on going into the future. I haven't seen, I haven't, I haven't seen a health campaign and you know and, and then everyone goes hey there will be more like this in the future or more consistent it's like seems like more reason to get our shit in order and uh haven't seen it but the reality is as a as a man um who will have a family someday a wife a family so on and so on a small community um 
whatever. It's on my onus to protect them. At the end of the day, I make my bed, right? And then I work forward from there to those that I can influence and help. And I think that's that's that might be all all we can do at this point to make is is to make our beds, make our house in order, make our community in order, so on and so on. And that might just be the best case scenario of all of this because I just it can't be an accident that no one's doing anything at this point. Not government isn't even trying to. You know, the health ministers don't exactly look like a bill of health, right? I just, really I just posted from. the uh, the video and the pictures of, I like, think it was the UK, Canada, US and Belgium. And I think someone said, oh, they're not our minister anymore. It doesn't matter. They were at one point, you know what I mean? And they're all 300 plus pounds. Like how the fuck, how could you even wake up and look in the mirror in the morning and go, I'm going to go lecture people on health, even though I'm an absolute piece of shit myself. You know, and there's lots, there's lots of that equation, mental health and everything. And I'm all for people getting themselves back. You're just not the person to be the health minister. Finance, you know, whatever else, perfect. You cannot have a health minister who's fucking dying. That's just not, that's not how it works. It's, uh, yeah, it's also a national security, like not national security, let's say, but it's a, it's a, it's a disturbance to, um, like when there is a health crisis, who's the first person to go down and who's the head and supposed to be the most knowledgeable person prepared to handle such a crisis? The person who's got comorbidity is probably not the person to handle such an emergency because they're the first one in hospital or the first one that's getting locked up, the first one that's moved away from society to protect them, right? So it just seems like, but yeah, I, I could... I could probably go into that one a little bit too deep, but I, I, just, I just, I just think it's a bit, it's just, I don't know. Not sometimes I'm like, in many regards, I'm like, you know, let's remove the attachment and just be like, not my circus, not my monkeys. Anyway, you know, kind of have to in many regards. I love that phrase. If you want to change the world, start at home. That's it. If we all did that, we'd truly change the world. You know, you start being kind and compassionate at home. You start, you know, moving with your kids, changing the way you eat, you would change the world. It would be amazing. But as long as we point at some political building, expecting them to change your country, you're missing the point. Yeah, I think that I think um, what's missing is that like healthy masculine energy at home. And it could be the mother or father. If it's a single mother, she usually steps up into that that healthy masculine kind of energy that's got some of those those leadership qualities, right? And I think it 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 really it stems from that in the in the household, right? Like setting that standard. And I think we've killed that so much that people are expecting the government to be that masculine energy, uh, leadership, and a few other things, and to, to educate their kids to solve their health problems, solve all their problems, and take care of them. Right? People have learned just to, to lean on government as daddy. And I, I think that doesn't do anyone any 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 real favors. Not for the next generation. Not for anyone. It's like because people are forgetting even how to make their bed, right? Never even being taught. So I, I I think it is a. I think I think yeah, that's all you can do, right? Is just have your own shit in order and hope that you lead by example by doing so. Absolutely. Well, speaking of leading by example, you had this burning desire to be in the military when you were young. I know you went through the Navy first and then found yourself with Australian SAS selection. So talk to me 
um, about what physically and mentally gave you the drive to succeed when so many people ran the bell in that selection process? Oh, yeah. Um, I, um, at 17 years old, at 16, I started, I knew 17 was the line to join the military. And at 16 years old, I started going to the, for a run or a swim every single day, doing push-ups, sit-ups, all these things that I knew that they would be criteria for testing. And I just, I had a pretty good resilience then. I was getting up at like 5 or 6 a.m., kind of riding to the pool, swimming, riding back, so on and so on. It was what I was, um, it was just kind of what I was doing. I was normalizing it. And I knew what I wanted to, I already knew of the SAS and the existence and all these things when I was a kid. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to do anything, I'm going to be the, the best. Like if I, you know, the, all the war movies or whatever, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to be the, the best one in them. Like the, the best warrior I could possibly be sort of thing. I'm like, also, those guys seem to live at the end of the war, by the way. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> that's an important a, point. terrible part of the trait. <laughs> it seems like a key part, you know, like, you know, whatever movie you watch, you watch Achilles, you're like, you know, he, he died, but he gave it a good nudge. Uh, at least he stood a chance for most of the battle. He wasn't one of the cannon fodder per se, um, which was a bit of a, con- you know, I guess a concern for the military. I, um, I I went into the Navy because my parents had to sign me in as a guardian at 17 to 18. I was still under The Navy was technically taking, taking responsibility to be the guardian. And uh, I had this will of the gods um, for a military future, and I knew what I wanted to do, but my mom wouldn't um, sign me in unless I did something of education. The family was pretty big on education, so it was like electrical, electronic technician, electrical engineering, no problem. I went as that, and I'm like, this will this would be a start point, and I'll go from there. And I got in, and I finished the recruit school, which was a bit of a you know, pretty hectic awakening for a young 17-year-old kid. 17, 10 days, I joined. And I just, man, I, I went for it. And I really didn't, I wasn't, and then after that, I wasn't interested in the engineering, but I knew I had to do it because if they kicked me out, the army wouldn't take me. So I had to pass this impossible engineering course that I got thrown on, which actually, which has a higher standard of for passing and studying and things than, than if I'd gone to university for electrical engineering. So I'd thrown myself in the deep end and technically I didn't even finish school. Like I just had the aptitude for it. Um, so it was like, you know, I, 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 I was hell bent on that. And, but I started, started training every day intensely, like every day from the day I left recruit school, like I would, I would be training and doing laps and running and swimming and, swimming in overalls or cams or whatever with shoes on and then running in between in the cold and then coming back and going to the gym every day, probably too much. So I just had this, this burning pursuit of that. And I just kept training until eventually in the Navy, I got, I I'd written someone in there, the special forces training center. And they said, look, I don't really have any of the army stuff to train with. And I'd been trained. It was clear. I was training every day to anyone who was, who was watching. Um, and I knew exactly what I wanted and wanted to do. And I got hold of this military equipment through them. But they were like fucking Lego, different bits and pieces. I had no idea how it went together. No one showed me anything, didn't see anything, couldn't find how to put it together. 
So I just kind of cuffed it until it worked and I had the wrong size boots. And then I started training on the Navy ships and just pursuing this. And I'm talking like really intense training, like lunchtime wouldn't be anything short of like maybe 80 to 100 chin-ups, um, definitely like maybe at 200 push-ups. It was just each lunch as well as like the gym session I was training twice a day, like maybe when I was on the ship it was like morning and night. And, and then I'd find myself um, doing three-hour pack marches around the flight deck of the ship in the Filipino sun um, with too much weight because I knew if I overtrained, everything would be fine. I knew if I overtrained, which became a problem, right? I knew that would be fine. But I just had this relentless drive in me. But because I um, had come from a background of like emotional numbness from the household, it made me really physically numb in many ways to be able to push through this. And I knew that it was such a vulnerability that if I opened up to that, it would shake me. So I deliberately avoided any intimate relationships with any, any women. It's not that I wouldn't like go out and drink and um, sleep with with girls, but I, I just wouldn't go into anything beyond that in any capacity that I was interested in, just because I knew it would compromise that uh, that internal fortitude I have. It was like, you know, softening the wine per se. Um, and yeah, I just and then I, I went from there. I did their entry test, the, the entry test for the special forces from the navy. No idea what I was doing, by the way. Really, I, I did, but I didn't. Like, I, I'd kind of worked out how to put the gear together. Um, and I turned up and I did, like, first or second in pretty much every every area with all these army guys, infantry guys, experienced dudes, because I just grossly overtrained. Because I had no idea what I was doing. I knew I had to compensate with the fact that I had to be fitter than everyone else so I could cuff whatever I didn't know. There was one thing there that was called, like, this run-dodge-jump test, kind of like an obstacle course, and I'd never even seen it before. So I knew I had to be so stupidly fit that I could screw up parts of that to pass it within the time frame. No problem. Um, anyway, and I, I did this, I had this, this pursuit, and, I, and then I went across to the, the army and I, I got a hernia um, at the start of my infantry course from overtraining. And I knew if I told anyone, they'd pull me off. So I didn't. And I, I wore a jockstrap, the same jockstrap, for like 12 weeks in the field. It was fucking disgusting. It was white. It was pretty much black as sweat always. And every at the end of every day, I'd have a hernia the size of a golf ball throbbing. And it was just like, I, I remember showing guys the jock strap, which you could smell. And I remember showing, I like showing guys the hernia and guys are like, one guy, like I got one guy to vomit in a bin by the end of course, just like showing him um, both the jock strap and this literally a golf ball per um jamming out from my groin uh it was pretty it was pretty disgusting but it was like i don't know i just was willing to push through the pain got through got um got this uh hernia repaired um didn't understand that i'd overtrained and post-surgery recovery and i was supposed to to do a course right that would bring me up to speed to prepare me for a a special forces um selection and course and i missed out on all the time others had in their battalion or the army because at this point they transferred me to the army from the navy and uh i i get in and to the like i miss out on that that course and that that time because i'm recovering and also i'm still recovering physiologically and I haven't recovered enough 
I turn up, I get basically to the end of this special forces course. It's like 40 days long, um, a few days short. And they're like, you don't have enough experience to be here. And, and to be honest, I shouldn't have been there. Like I couldn't barely stay awake. I was in the locker at a physical level I've never had before just because I didn't understand you need to recover from surgery. But I just, I took that hit. I kept going. I went to a, a battalion, an infantry battalion, went pretty quickly. I was determined, right? Everyone could see that that was watching. It was very fucking obvious. That's all I wanted to do. So they very quickly gave me promotions to be in charge of teams and go into specialty groups like reconnaissance and whatnot. And, and then I'm like, well, well, fuck this. I might be only 21. And with a nudge of a dear friend, um, like, fuck it. I'm just going to go for SS um, this year. And I just I put in my application. And uh, at this stage when I got the battalion, I still hadn't learned not to mediate, not to moderate exercise. So I stepped it up to five to seven times a day of training. Like I just knew at this point I'd learned that if I overtrained, I'm good to go. Fine. But I just had this just ticker in me that was just willing to just like do it or die trying. Like I, I gave it a, I gave it a good nudge and then that sort of brought me up to selection. Um, I injured myself before selection actually. At eight weeks, if I hadn't injured myself, I don't think I would have got through. It forced, I did my lower back through deadlifts. And as a result of that, I couldn't do lower upper body. And I had basically eight weeks of rest. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I had to stop and learn how to nap. I didn't even know how to nap. Like when I was going for the school of inventory on the weekend, I'd be drinking and socializing. I'd be sleeping an hour or two a night because I'd be having so much fun. And that wasn't just a one-off. That was always. I'd normalized just being like, yeah, I'll be fine. I'll just be tired and push through. But I hadn't realized the long-term physical, physiological ramifications of that. So that I had the sheer will of the gods in my my heart, my soul, my mind. But the I was starting to do the old top gun where I was writing checks. My body might not be able to catch cash. Well, you talked about the body being numb. I, I think I've heard that several times now, and it's exactly that. Through elements of someone's early life, there's a physical and or mental numbness where they it was almost like they didn't acknowledge the pain. They knew it was there, but that that kind of anesthetic to the acuteness of pain that other people were feeling was kicking into the point where some of them even said, yeah, selection wasn't even that bad. Because of that element. Yeah. 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 100%. It was like our selection was pretty, pretty brutal. I'm not going to lie. They'd, every year, a different instructor would take it and it was becoming a dick measuring competition. And the unit, they, after hours, they're like, all right, we need to rein this back in. It's getting a little bit too much. Um, far too much, I guess you could say. It was, it was, pretty, it was pretty out there. And we, uh, we, one thing that I've learned about the guys that are in that unit, the toughness that I don't know if anyone studied or not, but when I bring it up, that seems to be pretty damn obvious to people is why else would somebody put themselves through such hell and how can they be so numb as to put themselves through such hell 
and are willing to die doing it if they're other than to make themselves impossibly hard to kill and be good enough for themselves. Like it's like, you know, you'll never be good enough, right? Um, If they hadn't been through some sort of childhood situation where they were extremely vulnerable and not protected, you know, and that probably goes for most of the combat cause, I would say. But I think the guys that I went through in, in, in the unit, they weren't the fittest. They wanted it more than everyone else. And I just now, as I do more like indigenous medicines and stuff, I probably understand more about myself. And then it kind of became pretty damn obvious about probably about the rest of the guys, right? Where there was maybe a uh, physical abuse or physical vulnerability, I could I should say, because you're a child or um, a mental um, or emotional or sexual or who knows, right? Um, and I reckon a lot of these kids, a lot of these guys had, had pretty vulnerable childhoods in, in some regard, right, as to just be that numb and be able to take, like, like those guys at the selection with, you'd have to kill them for them to stop. Um, I've never met a tougher group of dudes who've been literally taken through hell. And then unlike any other selection, they decided to then throw 96 hours of resistance to interrogation at the end of ours. So the last six days without food and uh, food and sleep, and you're kind of like doing two marathons a day, and then there's some leadership stuff involved in that with some ridiculous weights and, 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 and tests, and then kept up all night being harassed, and it, it kind of just goes on for like six days of that, and then that usually ends selection, and then they take whichever guys haven't quit or haven't been removed and then they select the ones that they want from those. Well, that didn't stop for us at the end of 23 days. They then threw us into 96 hours of resistance to interrogation, which is another four days of no sleep and no food. Um, I believe they, in the line with the Geneva Convention, they gave us like two pieces of bread or something like that at one stage in the interrogation. And, and actually they did give us one meal um, a token meal that they give everyone on the, the SAS selection, which was um, like the second last day where they brought out this green slop stew of undercooked brains that had been left out to be riddled with maggots before they decided to cook it. And then they wanted to undercook it so it was hard to eat. Um, so it didn't have a taste or it was like, it was like, you know, you know, it wasn't a kind of a meat you could chew properly. So you had to be very aware you're chewing brains and maggots. Um, and it was so undercooked, it gave everyone ass piss and or vomit and or both. Um, so um, they really put us through the paces. And I look back now and I'm like, I just remember at the end of it, I'm like, the only people to hear at the end were the people who truly, truly, truly wanted to be there and were willing to die doing it. Um, it was something, yeah, that, that course is actually under investigation straight at the moment for, for torture. To, to understand how how intense it, it went. Like, it's like, okay, yeah, they definitely crossed a whole bunch of lines there. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I, just learning about the guys, right? Like, the body and the mind are so connected that completely numb, just fucking numb, you know? Like, like, like you got to just, you, your mind is 
basically got to a point where we we're able to numb the entire body out. Whereas others, the fittest guys, all these people are feeling it, like actually feeling it. Whereas the other guys, the guys that got through that really wanted to be there, they'd already been pros by this, by, by as a, a lifetime ahead of numbing themselves, right? Like a head start on that. Well, getting into the deployment side, we obviously want to get to transition and, and you know all the things that we're going to talk about then. But there's one thing I ask everyone who was deployed into combat. And the reason I do, as we kind of touched on a little earlier, the average civilian gets a very polarized view of war through their screens, either a very pro-war, you know, stacking bodies approach or a very anti-war baby killers approach. And in the middle are the men and women, arguably the, the children that we send overseas with our flag on the shoulder to fight for our country. So regardless of the politics that sent you there, was there a moment where you found yourself deployed in a combat zone where maybe you witnessed some atrocities and you realized there were some some horrible people that did need to be addressed? Yeah, for sure. Um, I almost got sent to, I guess, say Iraq. Um, there was a talk about that at some point there. And the guys that went to that geographic location have for sure seen some shit. Like it was normal for dudes to have spikes on the front of their cars with ISIS heads and just leaving them there. Like they were that you you were definitely aware that there was some shit going on for those guys. Taliban was a little bit um was definitely a little bit different, right? Like, is it, 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 child molestation was a thing that the culture of that a, a part of that country has a senior culture of you know, like Pashtun, and and I'm not going to say it's the whole culture, but I'm going to say it was pretty pretty damn common there for that. But it was common on both sides, right? And there was some like it's it's hard to look back on it at this point and be like. Yeah, these guys were kind of defending their homeland, but so were the police, and they were kind of killing each other, and they were like the poorest of the poor, and it was, in many regards, um, in many regards, it was like seeing, we were dealing with some pretty shit people, for sure, like bomb makers and all this sort of stuff, and then shameless about who they bombed and who they killed and who else died in the process, and, or kids or whatever, right? Like, that was pretty... That was for sure pretty pretty common. But to be honest, I can say that out of the whole thing, I think the worst of it was like civilian caught up in, in between. And it is so fucking hard because the Taliban were civilians too that decided to intimately pick up a rifle and be Taliban when it suited them. It's really fucking hard. But like the some of the stuff that sits with me is like the the child like um, the, the suffering of, of children I think in that in that in that war and the ruthlessness of the of the Taliban in many ways with everyone that they got they just didn't have to play by the rules right and and Maybe towards the end of the war, I think they they, they got it. They realized they're like, all right, 
it's kind of a game of hearts and minds. Like, do you think these Americans are going to stay forever? So, you know, maybe you should start siding with the Taliban. And I do think that maybe, um, you know, maybe in the end, the Taliban probably softened to that a bit, realizing that they needed to maybe hold this country once America left and they took it, which they did. The writing was kind of on the wall. But I think it, it initially, like, um, you know, they didn't give a fuck. I think it was pretty ruthless behavior. And they didn't give a fuck who got killed in the process. So for the Western soldiers, it was really a lot of fighting with one hand behind your back in many ways, fucking both hands. And you had the guys on your side of the wire, the lawyers, people who had no concept of warfare. You had those people trying to keep an arm tied behind your back. And then outside the wire with the civilian population, you had the other hand tied behind your back. And it was really a pretty nightmare environment to try to be like, to try to, you know, make those, making those decisions and removing the Taliban off the battlefield, which we did pretty damn good at, by the way. But in answer to your question, I, did, I honestly think it's like, the Taliban were pretty fucked up people, but in the end, it actually got pretty hard um, to like to not just accept the whole situation for absolutely fucking everyone is pretty goddamn fucked up. Like there was a very half-assed approach, obviously, towards the end of the the, the conflict and the work of that conflict, right? Like a very half-assed from 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 strategy, political strategy down. And it was just a war of attrition. And, you know, there, there, there wouldn't be, yeah, there just wouldn't be one soldier that's, that's that wasn't affected or even probably civilian. Like, God knows what those civilians think is normal now and they're under the rule of the Taliban and let that be self-evident of how the Taliban are treating, are treating women and minorities. Like, as I, I'd like to say that the Taliban were pretty... Um, shitty but i saw some things from the civilians and the way that they treated their women and stuff is not fucking red hot neither you know um so yeah it's it's a really it's a bit of a tough it's a tough fucking question in many regards yeah well i think that's why this is what we need to hear you know what i mean like i said you get the glory you know chess beating american flag videos from one side and then you get the you know if you want to go back to vietnam the spitting on soldiers from the other side and in the middle of these of these stories, these perspectives of what we ask our men and women to do. The other side that we hardly ever hear is kindness and compassion. So again, right now, Russia, the entire country of Russia is the enemy, if you look at the, the news, when obviously there's a lot of Russian people that are being oppressed, and it's the minority that are actually deciding to go into a different country. So talk to me about kindness and compassion in a combat zone, what you witness on that side. I um, and I've, I've, no matter what, no, you know, Western soldier, the way we treat dogs, I can always tell a culture pretty well by the way they treat dogs. Like it's a huge indication to me. And then the next one is the way they, they treat women. You know, it's like, um, if they really love dogs, I'm like, right, they're pretty good people. Like Brazilians, I'm like, yeah, you're, you, you adore children. You adore, you adore dogs, and there ain't no way in hell you can get away with like 
go and go and treating women that you just wouldn't get far. Um, and then there's obviously scales up from that. Well, in Afghan, I saw a lot of um, ill-treated, uh, ill-treated women and kids in many ways pretty well neglected. But the child children scenarios that I think are the ones that leave the scars for the soldiers because you kind of get caught up with the adults being adults, right? But the suffering of the children in many regards, like I won't, I won't go into it. I've got one with a, with a child that I that I will live with me forever, and I don't think there's enough indigenous medicine or anything that could ever shake that one. And then sometimes you'll have a glimpse with guys when they're having a drink or whatever, and they'll, they'll have a little crack in the armor, and they might talk about their own experience where, you know, I know positive. Well, one of my best mates basically saved the saved the kid. Um, from bleeding out. Um, and I know one of them, guys like, because the Taliban were civilians and will go into their bloody homes. Dad gets killed, kid killed right in front of his kids, kids screaming. I know one of my buddies is like, well, to me, he's like, every time I hear my baby or a toddler cry, I hear the sound of that kid crying for the father I killed. He's like, I, it sends shivers down my spine. And I think it's just the, that's the part that is like left with everyone, right? Is like, I think everyone's just trying to do the right thing by the, really, adults can be adults, but the kids that got caught up in it, whether you helped the kid, saved the kid, or, or like, you know, endured the consequences of the war and the kids involved in it it's like i think that's the shit that sort of that does linger the most and um i'd like to say in many regards that there's a brighter future for him but we you know the, i don't know what does it look like now with the taliban you know it is kind of you know just left that to be an absolute fucking circus so uh, you know it, a lot of the guys, many of the guys, you know, especially the guys who lost their sons and soldiers and daughters or whatnot in the war, it's pretty hard for that family to look at that now, I'd, get, I'd say, and just be like, what the fuck was that for? Like the government didn't even fucking try, evidently, to put up a, to, to, to even make it look like, oh, it was a slow transition out. The Taliban eventually got it. They literally just stopped caring to such a degree that the Taliban, across a desert, it wasn't Vietnam in the jungle. Vietcong building tunnels and shit and, and moving by night, hidden, pretty open terrain, convoys, tanks and stuff, just walk into the capital and take it. So I'd like to say that they even gave a fuck, but I, I guess that was pretty self-evident by their actions that they didn't. So I feel like, I don't know, I, I, I don't really know how to feel at the end of that one, to be honest. And it's something that I've, there wasn't many guys that fought in that war that when they watched that on the television weren't didn't fucking lose it in some way or another. You know, like you kind of realize it was a moment where everyone was all really stressed and antsy. Random guys just sort of breaking down or getting furious, whether it be online or on a phone call or in their life or their family life or whatever. It was just it was it was pretty evident disrespect of them as well, right? So anyway, I I'm, I'm like 
I'd like to try to find the silver lining in this to give you an answer. And I'm just not sure what the fuck it is. And, and you know, and then, yeah, which is an answer. And then the other one, I've got my, my brethren back in Australia and the unit. Um, the guys that are on the pointy end that were constantly used and worked to death doing up to like maybe 15 kill capture deployments across several theatres. Grossly overused, waivers signed without them even aware of it even to redeploy consistently without any decompression or downtime back into combat and uh, having to make some pretty shitty decisions. Now getting every one of them slowly disseminated by a fucking courtroom at the pace of, you know, oh, we've got all the time in the world to go through this. That there is like the next level of, send me back to Vietnam where I get spat on for a day as I try to march. Give me that. Take that fucking, I take that every day. Every citizen of the country can spit on me. You just let my fucking brethren go home. Because right now they haven't left the fucking war. Just imagine just having, dealing with that shit for an infinite period of time. Because there's no time cap on this. They're just, they're getting dragged through the mud where they go through every single scenario and, and, and incident and rough decision making. And that could go on for another 20 years. And it doesn't just affect one of the, doesn't just affect the guy under, under, under um, examination by by whatever legal authorities in the civilian court, it affects like every single guy who ever fought in that war. They don't get to go home. They don't get to even. They don't even get to get there in March that they returned home so they can go back to the civilian world and try to make whatever the rest of their lives. They're just kind of kept in it. Um, it's making it awful, awfully fucking hard. Um, to see any silver lining for a very ungrateful nation. Organizational betrayal is one of the biggest elephants in the room when it comes to mental health and suicide. The number of people that I know, I mean, there are, there are a multitude of compounding elements. Childhood trauma, which we've spent a lot of time on, is is huge. You know, I think it's one of the least discussed as well because what happened to us before we put the uniform on? Oh well, Nick, you know, you're you're going through this because you saw you know that kid in in Afghanistan, and we're you know totally ignoring. Well, this happened when you were eight and nine and ten, etc. But the other thing is, you put on that uniform. You have an Australian, British, American flag on your shoulder. You fight for a supposed mission. And then you come home and you're told, actually, you were wrong. Actually, you didn't do the mission properly. So now that very organization that you fought for, that you were a part of, has now betrayed you. So in, in ancient tribal you know, elements, you basically got thrown out the tribe and now you're in the middle of the Serengeti on your own. So this is, I think, what is so dangerous about what we're doing. Don't get me wrong. If there's atrocities, there's war crimes, it's a whole different thing. But I had uh, John Graham on, who was British SAS back in the day. He fought in the Falklands War. And same thing with the Northern Ireland conflicts. You know, again, you, you put these people into this nightmare scenario. You know, the, the Irish people, the British soldiers. I mean, this, this, this horrible, vicious circle of violence. And things are going to happen. And now, you know, decades later, they're hauling these men in, into court for, you know, basically defending themselves on the Irish streets, which in, which in itself was was absolutely heartbreaking that you know i consider myself you know all those two rocks in the middle of the atlantic ireland england scotland wales 
those are all my people. So the fact that we even have lines drawn and, you know, Christians are killing Christians because one's a Catholic and one's a Protestant, it's insanity. But you take these people that you sent to go do that thing, you ordered them to go, they do their job the way they were trained with the tools that they had, and then you haul them into court, you know, outside of a, a, you know, a real atrocity, that is going to lead to so many fucking overdoses and suicides and broken marriages because that was that was the mission. And then you came back and said, oh, actually, no. You know, so this it breaks my heart when I hear this because it was selfless service and then complete betrayal when they returned home. Everyone, most people there are fucking kids, right? You ever look back now and be like, fuck me. I look back and I'm like, man, I was 20. Or, and I was still somewhat even mature when I first went to Afghan. Um, found myself killing my first Taliban and 23 or 24. And that was pretty young. And then you repeatedly waver these guys to be sent back again because it makes you look so good when they do so, such good work that. You're just, they're just taught that everything's almost a fucking nail and they're a fucking hammer because they're only getting sent into Taliban compounds. They've been tracking for days, no weapons there, bombs there and shit, constantly getting shot at. There's no, like, we're doing a casual patrol, nothing today. Like, no, we're flying in, probably get shot at on the arriving, probably get shot at when you're in there, probably get ambushed several times. Can, and then there was a point there where they're like, oh, yeah, you know, there's getting civilian casualties every now and then because of the obscurity of night. Um, so now you're going to be really limited, limited night raids. You can't really do your job. And then, you know, someone comes up with the idea of doing day raids, and so then we do day raids, which was fine because we, we fucking loved it, right? We were the soldiers. It was our job to fucking want to be there for the hunt because if we weren't, you're on the wrong fucking team. Go home. Because, like, we're on the team survival here. We're on team, got everyone's fucking back. We're going into this. Yeah, there is no there is no room for anyone short of a fucking warrior out there when you're going to situations where you're pretty up against it every fucking day. Um, there's no there's no guys just filling slots. Um, the whole thing is a bit of a complete fucking charade of perfect civility now to examine it all. And yeah, I and I and I'm a I'm in, you know, in many regards, like, okay, people answer for their, people answer for their, their, their crime. If there's a, if there's a crime there, right. But it damn well better be a fucking obvious one. And it better be wrapped up fucking soon. Cause you were dragging the, I, I don't even know how many soldiers went to that war, but you're keeping them all in it for as long as you just play that on the news. You're, there's still guys from the infantry battalions. Like I've got a dear friend of mine. I don't know how many funerals of suicides he goes home goes to every year. The, the SAS are, you know, the guys are pretty damn resilient. And I, I pray to God one of them doesn't succeed because I think that might open a floodgate that we're not prepared for. But I know the infantry battalions are doing it fucking tough. There are some guys there that are just fuck. I, I, I write my buddy every now and then. And I, and some reason I, I, I get, I've had more than one occasion, maybe three of them that I've written him occasionally 
and he's at a funeral for a mate of his that's committed suicide. Like, I'm like, how many of these are you fucking attending a year? Mm-hmm. It's, he's service. like, it's, it goes, it's all pretty often. I don't want to take a phone call from my fucking guys that are, that I surf with. He goes, I, they call me. I don't want to fucking take it. Um, and keeping this in the media and in the news, it's like, draw a line in the fucking sand. Choose what seems obvious and what seems fair and what seems necessary and just and, and get it done. Fucking do it because you're just, you're keeping an entire generation in the war still and they deserve to go fucking home. And this is the shit that it's like, I think America actually, um, I remember seeing a presidential order or something that it's like after a certain period of time, they can't be, they basically can't be looked into. Like if you haven't decided to fucking open the case before this period of time, then you've missed your fucking window. Let these guys move on. Because imagine if this shit's still going in 20, 30 years, especially while everyone's hell-bent on picking a war with fucking China and Russia. Picking a war that they won't fight, by the way. Um, someone else, like, you know, and I don't know how much longer it'll just be the Ukrainian and Russian kids killing each other. And when it's everyone else's kids getting thrown into it, be careful who the fuck you vote for. Because at the end of the day, those guys there, you know, they'll be this next this generation will still be in the fucking courtroom and they'll be in the next war and they'll be wondering why they can't get guys to go fight it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is the thing. I mean, I had someone come on recently and I've, I've quoted this a few times because I thought it was profound. America specifically, we are the poster child for democracy. But as we have touched on, you know, you look at our mental health crisis, you look at our children being murdered in the schools, you look at the obesity epidemic, and you look at the way that we left the Vietnamese and then we left the Afghani people. And you could argue Iraq as well. When you're selling that product, people are going to be like, eh, about that. And it's the same with the service, whether it's trying to foster allies when we left all those people that helped us to, you know, the hands of the Taliban or whether it's our next generation of young men and women that are, you know, going to be protecting this nation. It's the same with, with, with police, you know. If you're just going to drag them through the mud over and over again, don't be surprised one day where there's no one signing up anymore. And now you're crying oh because God. someone's fucking breaking into your house. It, like grossly overused hammers going out and only interacting with people who have broken the law that are technically criminals almost entirely throughout your day. At what point did we not think there were going to be fucking hammers and think everything's a nail? I, like, w- w- where is there any logic outside of that? You know, like, <laughs> literally, you've you've taught them only to interact with nails, so they become a habit. They become a hammer eventually, and then, like, it's by the sheer will of the gods, they either break or they fuck up in the line of duty because they're grossly overstressed, overworked, and everything's a fucking everything's a nail. And again, there are pretty young guys out there on the beat too. And under-trained. decisions in the under-trained. Holy shit. Like, I remember the, the police in Australia would be lucky if they could hit an A4 piece of paper at five metres with a fucking pistol. Like, to be honest, it wasn't until I started using a pistol in the, in the, really heavily in the, in the, in the unit that I'm like, oh, fuck. Holy shit. It actually takes a bit of time to even start getting confident to hit the A4. And then more to the point, confident to hit it multiple times when you're combat shooting, like pretty quick, right? Drawing and, and shooting. 
and then to be able to hit it at further distance and stuff it's absolutely not like the movies in any fucking capacity and it's almost it's almost near impossible because as your heart rate goes up your gross your gross motor skills are the only thing that you really hang on to your fine motor skills go and your complex motor skills are the combination of the two and as you get that tunnel vision and stress with that moment you don't get those fine motor skills that allow you to pull that trigger so perfectly you've got other decisions involved in this like who's on the other side of the target who's close to this target what is the environment is this target still a threat is it a threat now is it a threat by the time i pull the trigger what's going to happen to me post this you know what does this mean for me my income my family my security am i going to be on fucking scene and am i going to jail a lot of decisions going through the head in that in that that high stress moment let alone with their ability to even hit the fucking target and then you get police that die before they even make the decision under trained and then they hesitate to pull the trigger because of the consequences because they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't they're fucked either way absolutely and i've heard that from you know so many people on the show and, and there are some amazing agencies that do it right but sadly they're they're the anomalies i believe they really are because we just don't give these men and women the support and even as we touched on with your training for the sas the rest and recovery you know they need to be able to recover they need to be able to get as close to baseline between shifts and our, the fire service in america is absolutely fucking horrendous which is literally working our men and women into the ground yep and that's but that's the system though right the system is I work you. I don't I don't have any down maintenance schedule. I work you until you break. And then I have the next uh, reinforcement personnel take your spot in your career. And that and that's that's why I um that's one of those things about that 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 the foundation that I, I launched for regenerative medicines, those things can be used as preventative medicine. Christ, I'm thank God that the psychedelics are starting to come through the system. Because those there are regenerative for the mind and the soul and actually like being able to process what you've done and what you've been through and find a, a rational level and connection with the world again. So that maybe you might not be such a hammer um, when the time comes to you know make decisions. You might be able to use a bit more natural fluid judgment and maybe use, and, and some more compassion or something in the, in the situation. Obviously, scenario dependent where it might not escalate. Or it might go another way. I, I don't. I don't know. But it's like the rest is so fucking important. It's it's what I it's what I failed at. I, I served basically three kill capture deployments within two years in Afghan, and I and for and then the rest period between, I spent about two thirds of the rest period learning two new extremely intense courses, one of them being JTAC, which is basically coordinating aircraft, deconfliction of the airspace on the battlefield, um, which means that you don't get the glory of the bomb dropping, but you inherit all the consequences should that be fucked up. And unlike everyone else sitting on top of a hill next to a general, you're in the thick of it. And and then I did the, the dog course where we, we had a special operations combat assault dog and that would have to do everything with me you know roping helicopters skydiving ships fucking whatever it was he was with me as well as the training responsibility to him because who's going to train him better than me who's going to be more diligent than me and taking him in and like who's going to watch who's going to train him to the standard they need him at to protect 
the rest of the pack. And I got almost no time off. And I, I, I knew what it was. I didn't need it in a sense. I, I was fine until I wasn't. Until I had a complete unraveling physiologically and mentally. And it just kept fucking going and going until it just got to breaking point. And yeah, and then I'm sure there was another reinforcement to take my position, which I'm kind of glad because it's like, you know, in the fire department, I'm sure it's like when you can't do it anymore, thank fuck there's some young buck ready to come through to watch the backs and, and, and help the guys that are starting to get on a bit that might be, you know, might have a few injuries they're managing and whatnot. You, you're kind of grateful for that, right? But at the same time, the senior guys, if they'd had some sort of regenerative medicine along the way, regenerative mental health program or something along the way and some downtime to ensure like planned maintenance. You you don't have, I worked in electrical engineering for the shipping, right? So I had like planned maintenance that wasn't waiting until it got to stress and broken point for all the complex weapon systems, the radar, the sonar and whatnot. You have it for all complex machinery, but they have really none for the fucking, the people, you know, and if they'd had that, they might have been able to get another five, ten years out of these senior guys. And then they don't have to worry about things like retention. And then we have to worry about skill loss and so on. These guys are immensely more valuable the more time they've served. And we don't have fucking any of it. And no one seems to be interested in, in having it and changing the system, right? Well, you mentioned the unraveling. So yeah, I'd love to kind of start there walk you through you know where it took you and then your transition out in pursuit of solutions for the things that you were dealing with yeah um so yeah i can i can give a pretty good synopsis here on that i um after the third deployment i was aware i wasn't resting even between the deployments in really any capacity and even grappling with what now, this is what I know, right? Looking back, retrospectively, I am aware that I didn't spend any time or get any instruction on the processing of what I went through and what I did, what was becoming normal. Um, and I'm aware I wasn't getting any advice or counsel on how to actually rest in any capacity that might have been right. And it seems like no one had ever learned anything from any other fucking war or bother to even track maybe how that should be done. So I came back from my third deployment, and it's, and at this point I was like, all right, I'm actually pretty fucking tired. Like I'm feeling it. It's not just not a I not sleep feeling. It's a like it's a deep core feeling of fatigue. And I'm like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to uh, gonna go rest. Surprise! They stopped any time off, and they're like, nope, you've got to do like four or whatever weeks of complete counter terrorism, anti terrorism training to prepare for domestic and foreign terror scenarios and take over that responsibility for the, for the next few months. And I'm like, oh, fuck me. So we went, we went straight from the our third deployment to do that. And that point there, it was like, I was fucked. I was pretty beat, right? I'd really kicked the ass out of it the last few years of chasing war and training in between. And, um, all right, I, I did it. But at the end of the, like, and I had the dog as well. So I was up early, everyone else, I was training the dog around the clock and I was doing all the all the operations and objectives and everything that we had to do and, and for the missions. And, and it was just, 
of some compounding fatigue. And then one day, the last day, I remember walking, dropping the dog off and walking to the car and I'd walked 80 meters and I'd only had about another 80 meters or 80 yards, you know, say that same measurement to walk. And I just, I couldn't walk it. I was just so exhausted to the bones that I just started like, I, I like, I can't walk to this. I can't walk to the car. I'm fucking shattered. And it wasn't just a normal fatigue that I'd been a pro at pushing through, by the way. Like, you do some selection. You're like, this stage I was, you know, yeah, that's, this was something different. And that's when, you know, I'm like, I went to a doctor and he's like, all right, you've got chronic fatigue. I'm like, okay, what do I do? He's like, I just rest. I'm like, well, that's pretty vague instruction, but no worries. I got used to doctors giving me a lot of diagnoses and no real instruction on how to fix it, by the way, becomes the norm. Here's your, here's your, your label. Good luck out there. Um, and anyway, so I took some time off and I started noticing at that time off that I started having, um, anxiety. Um, for the first time, I started not being able to sit in cinemas, sitting in the bedroom. Um, I just shake and rock and stuff. And it was getting weird. I didn't know what the hell was happening. Kind of sucked that up. And then I went back to Australia after some months off. And um, I, you know, I tried to go back into the unit and, and I did. And that was fine. And I, I kept operating. That distracted me for a while. But then it started to get to the point where I needed to, getting sad and miserable. And, and uh, I started to get to the point where I was like, the anxiety and the, the sadness or the what, depression was really creep. The depression started creeping in a bit and I, I couldn't meditate enough to really keep it in bay and keep it in check. And um, I had a girlfriend in there overseas for the first time and the emotions there kind of really, I think elevated the, the process of this thing, right? Like it kind of came at me like a fucking train and uh, I ended up destroying that relationship entirely off the fact that I just seemed not interested because I was too busy trying to fight my internal battles and the anxiety and everything got ignored to such a degree that I was starting to not even be able to just operate at daily life. I couldn't remember things. I couldn't keep concentrate on anything more than maybe five or six seconds. Um, Couldn't remember. So the memory, the brain fog, the inability to remain present in any fucking moment. I forget exactly what I'm doing when I'm doing it all the time. I And then it got to a point where I was, bre- I, I was breaking down crying like 15 times a day and I didn't know why. I had no idea. Complete, absolute circus. It was just a shit show. It was a proper shit show. I was driving to work. It was a three-minute drive and I'd almost die or kill other people multiple times on the way. It was, it was, um, it was a mess. I wasn't sleeping. I couldn't sleep. I wouldn't stop shaking in my sleep. Uh, constantly waking up. Um, if I did go to sleep, I, uh, I was just trying to hold it together and hit it. I kept it hidden. Um, because eventually it got to a point where I'm like, all right, I can't even go to the range. Not because I'm worried about shooting myself. I'm worried about accidentally shooting someone else from losing concentration. What the hell I was doing. Like I couldn't even orientate myself in a direction it got so bad. Like, it's like, I, I'm like, I'm afraid to even put rounds in a gun here because I'd probably shoot my own leg, shoot someone else. Like, I, I just couldn't remember what my fingers were doing when I was doing shit. It got, it got really, really bad. So I, I and I didn't, my, my job was to protect the brethren next to me, not to jeopardize their life. 
And uh, that's what got me through Afghan. And that's what gets me through still today for the purpose of it all. The only thing that I can look back on is that I'd do it again for them for sure. And uh, I wasn't able to do this and I had to walk into an office and tell commander one day. And it was one of the emotional, like I mean, I was already broken down crying 15 times a day, but it was one of the most, most emotionally destroying things I've had to do because at the same day, I no longer a part of this pack. I'd lost my identity and my career. Just knowing that I say that and that's game over. I've lost my mission, my purpose in this world. I can no longer protect the back of the people, the brethren that I, I loved and had gone through a lot, a journey with. I could no longer, and no one was going to do it better than me. And I couldn't do that anymore. And it, took everything from me in one day really and then they took me to another commander and at this point it was like I was so aware I was so fucked that I couldn't do it anymore I was a, a proper broken shattered mess of hiding this and uh, yeah they they took me they, they like took me to another commander they talked and like Jesus Christ let's get you let's get you home walk and um, walk home and stay there until we work out what to do and they handled it like a crisis right triage medicines of like you know antidepressants and get me into like a, a proper trauma recovery course at a hospital and all that stuff and i i went through that for three months and that's what i call like really good trauma medicine of the psych psychiatrics right i think psychiatrics are trauma um like sorry triage medicine the triage they're like all right let's filter through who's a priority what they need inpatient outpatient drugs not drug counselor or whatever and that's only good for a few months until you get to a stable point and the same with the medicines we use for surgery and shoulder reconstruction and all these other things. That's only good for a few points. They're not long-term solutions, right? And uh, I went through that, and that kind of brought me back from that brink to a certain point, but definitely not near a fucking finish line, Jesus Christ, no. And that was, that was the mental part, right? So according to the body keeps the score, everything's connected, right? They can basically predict... Um, the diseases and major diseases and chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. I got fibromyalgia in there as well, right? There's a stepping stone process to it, like for major trauma. That if you like, if you go through uh, women that go through physical trauma, you know, and, and mental and emotional, like sexual abuse, of like 99 point whatever percent certainty to get PTSD. And if that's unchecked and untreated, it turns into chronic fatigue. Next step is fibromyalgia. Next step is autoimmunity. Next step is major chronic diseases. Um, it's and it's 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 you know it's blink and, and it's blink. It's pretty it's pretty standard. So I um I got to the point of the fibromyalgia and then got the mental health stuff and the mental health stuff kind of got pretty well in check. Just, just pretty well in check is just like all right, I'm probably not going to die from mental health today. Like that, that, that's what I consider it like in check. I, I like, that's why I call it like triage. It gets to the point where let's stop the, let's stop the bleeding. Let's get to a state that this person is not going to die on the operating table and that they're pretty stable and we don't need to plug into machines. All right. But there's a whole bunch of surgeries and things and learning to walk and whatnot thereafter to completely rehabilitate a person, which we're shitty at. And so I went through all this and I, um, I, yeah, I got to a, I got to a stage of, of um, getting out of the military, 
but just before I got out and I was going to see all these doctors every other fucking day, it was like my job just to see doctors and cycle and whatnot. I started feeling this, this exhaustion over me that had kind of ramped up from where it was before the mental health stuff, just like really ramped up. And I'm like, I can't do this job in any capacity anymore. I'm not going to be in an office. I'm not going to do this. I'm like, if I can't do this job with these guys, like I'm not walking around with this shame here forever. So I, 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 um, I left and I moved on and I, you know, got away from it all to get away from the military, to get away from the, the, um, the shame involved in not being able to be there anymore. And, uh, and then, but and then started trying to rest and move on with my life, and uh, and that's when the physical, physiological injury started catching up. Really, like I was in a war triage of myself between mental, physical, and then physiological. Physiological is what I call the fatigue, chronic fatigue, the the gut health, the the um the autoimmunity, the fibromyalgia stuff where you're intermittently healing. Fibromyalgia is kind of like, they don't even know, they just call it that when they don't really know what to call when you intermittently heal. And um, I'd had multiple viruses in my system from random jungles and I'd probably had lead poisoning from using lead rounds to indoor ranges and eating. Like I'd, I'd shoot my, like thousands of rounds every day and load every one of them myself lead tips on my hands covered black quite often and eat with those same hands and there wasn't any counseling on that i did that for years so all this other shit like in there right as well as the mental health causing um predominantly i'd say you know inflaming these injuries um and it got to a point where i just i was um sick 10 months out of the year for the first year i was out I say sick, I mean, I was getting disease, like bacterial infections, viral infections, one for the other, never truly recovered. And then the two months that I wasn't sick, it was like, it was okay, but I was, I was fatigued. And then the next year, it was less sicknesses, but more. The fatigue in between was like, like insufferable. And then the third year, it started to come to a point where it was like, holy fuck, I'm not surviving here. I'm like, I'm really maybe not doing well. And it got to a point where I was like, all right, I'm pretty sure I might be about to die. Like my eyes twitching. I'm filled with parasites. I've got bright white dots around my eyes. My nervous system shut down. I shake in my sleep permanently. No amount of sleeping drugs will keep me asleep. And it's not a mental health thing at this point. I knew the difference between depression or sickness and just misery from circumstance. And it was like, I'm, 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 I'm really not well. And at this point, the military taught me everything to just push through, shut up and just fucking get through shit. And that was really not serving me at this point. Um, and doctors had really let me down immensely and, and quit or just gone cold when they couldn't solve the problem immediately. Um, I had one doctor that Kyra actually that, that really did help. And he's like, you need to get out of altitude. You need to be in the sunlight every day. Your immunity just isn't there. It's not a thing. Um, ended up serendipitously meeting someone to take a stab at stem cells. And, it was expensive relatively for someone who was just not able to work at this time while I'm trying not to die. But I was aware that I probably only had a few months sort of left to live somewhere in here. So I, I, um, I took a punt after talking to their head of medicine 
I don't, and I'd, I'd listen to a few podcasts and whatnot about damn cells, and I took a anyway, I took a punt, and uh, I was getting pretty close, like aware of my significantly damaged health, like how fucking bad it was while I was going through the administration. I'm like, I'm actually, I feel like I'm dying. Um, I had full blown autoimmune at this time, right? Like I just, I, I wasn't healing in at all. Living, existing was suffering. I regretted existing. It was like I, I, I exist in the hope in the hope that one day I just won't just be existing for the sake of existing. Um, and uh, the stem cells, I took it, and the doctor was like, "Look," she gave me confidence. She was like, "I, you're suffering on the whole. This could take three months, could take six months. I don't really know how long you've got." left per se she goes you're in a really bad way and she's like and quite frankly um I, I, it's experimental medicine technically and we 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 can't guarantee anything for that but i can tell you that i've hundred percent success rate with every other patient that i've treated with your conditions here and i'm like well i'm pretty sure i'm dying so fuck it let's do this and i i paid for it and had to go through three sessions three months apart of each and it, I took the first one and then I went down to Brazil. And at this point, I couldn't have phone conversations with anyone or interact with anyone socially. I didn't have the energy, spare energy for a phone call or a conversation with anyone unless they were a store clerk to buy water or something. And I barely could leave the home. And I was in the locker in a really bad way. Um, probably had about two to three months left before there was something don't think it was going to probably take my life there. Like not myself, but like disease. I, I just wasn't, I was done. Um, and, uh, stem cells didn't work until about two and a half months. And it was getting pretty dangerous and close to like just breaking. Um, and then all of a sudden I started feeling good. I was feeling better, started healing. And then I was, I've had the rug pulled under me before by these metals. I was very nervous. And then I kept getting better and I kept getting better every day. I'd catch myself smiling and then I'd be like, all right, let's, I don't want the rug pull from underneath me. So let's not get hopeful just yet. And then I got better again. Um, uh, the next to the next treatment, it was even more complex and more double the cells this one this time went into the brain through the spinal canal pierced the blood brain barrier to get rid of all the inflammation in the brain and all the tbi damage and all these things as well as through the system through an iv and that's probably important to talk about like stem cells are basically unidentified cells right um that enter the body and um or you create them in your body and they're basically unprogrammed cells so they come in and they're like all right where is the damage to a missing cell and they become that cell. So they're like undesignated cells. And so going into your spinal canal, into your brain, pretty great shit. Uh, got rid of a whole bunch of brain fog and mental problems and a lot of just lingering um, problems from inflammation. Like not all the fog, but most of it. And it was like enough for me to have a quality of life again. After that second round, I, I started being able to live again. I started being happy. I started enjoying some of the fruits of life and just, and then I even had a third round and I was so grateful to do that. Um, 
I went through on a fucking journey of near death, but once I'd done that, it was like, all right, let's triage of the physical health and I keep seeming to get better. So I guess now's the time to work on the mental and and the soul level. And that's when Jesse Gould had really set me on a path for the psychedelic stuff uh, with ayahuasca. And I don't half-ass fucking anything, so I'm like, let's do this. There's a lot of shit here that's been really gone to the wayside for the last several years while I'm trying not to die. And I went in, and I found some of the most beautiful experiences in life, altering things for the better than before I went in, before I had the mental health and physical health calamity that come of that, you know. Um, and I could talk chapters on that. I, I found... I opened my heart. Like I always thought that was an expression. I started feeling like a person for the first time. I found love for myself for the first time several months after that. With some use of the back of Joe Dispenza's meditations and things as well. Learning how to meditate essentially. But understanding the science behind it. So, you know, I could because the West you've got to kind of understand the science to take things seriously. It's really just um what do you call it, quantum physics. And uh and then that spiral into understanding appreciation for women, feminine energy, and then understanding the, sort of the appreciation of the, for, for the men and the masculine energy. And it just it really just that shaped my life as well. And between those two things, between the stem cells and then the, you know, the, the true regenerative medicine, right? And the stem cells have developed, by the way, through R&D over those years since I've done it, they're far cheaper, not, you know, dirt cheap. They're still quite expensive, which is why I had to create the foundation, but they're much cheaper and even much more advanced in their technique there isn't. But between that and the, and the, the medicines, holy shit. I bought my back self back from a pretty damn brink, um, close to the brink place. It was, it was bleak. I was in, it was not looking good. You mentioned the body keeps the score. I'm sure a lot of people listening are identifying with the symptoms. I mean, you know, the, there's a phrase, I think it's uh, the body is the battleground for the war of the mind. And it is, you know, I mean, we talked about, Mike, I'm, I'm realizing there's an imbalance in my gut flora as we speak today. I've been having some bloating, which is really annoying when you've got a six pack and like you're four months pregnant at the same time. But, uh, you know, this, the, the fibromyalgia, the IBS, the, you know, I mean, all these things, the inflammation in the joints, this is the other side of the mental health conversation. So I think it's, it's very powerful to hear you say, I wasn't there as far as suicide, but I was fucking dying physiologically. So with the stem cells, with psychedelics, one of the things that's so heartbreaking is both of those areas there's a, a huge amount of illegality in the US, in Australia, in the UK. Um, talk to me about, you know, where you ended up having these therapies done. And then, you know, uh, uh, is there any element, is there any kind of uh, optimism on those very therapies being done in our countries? Or is this still something that people have to go overseas for? Okay, so Jesse Gould, I think. Um, has Heroic Hearts Foundation, right? And that's one of the key pillars, I think. And it depends if you triage. Is your health terrible or is your soul and mental health terrible? And you need to work out 
like which one's the priority of treatment at this point, right? Because it becomes really hard to treat your soul and mental health if you're physically dying. And that's the decision I had to make. But if it's the other way around, then it depends where you start. So for me, the doing all the indigenous medicines are best done in the indigenous locations and close to the Amazon. You know, and if you're working with North American medicine, that's another story. But and I and I don't and it's obviously, you know, do it where it's legal. Because legal also usually will have, you know, you make your decisions or whatever, and then you'll you'll find that the place I'd go to in Colombia has a doctor. One of the doctor, a doctor that's believes in the medicines and all that stuff and has some has some overwatch and oversight over that. And it's kind of like my temple there, to be honest. It's where I've, I've been multiple times and really close to the owner and the and the shame in there is um like the, the governor of the Amazon region in Colombia. He's just really well respected. Um and I for that, like I started with Jesse Gould and did it with a bunch of other veterans in the jungle of Peru in a retreat there. And that was very powerful. And I think God bless Jesse Gould, right? And I will propagate this information as much as I can, as often as I can, because it is some of the most beautiful, rewarding and healing shit that I've that I've ever ever seen. And and like, don't get me wrong, I'm also a firm believer in getting on with your fucking life. Like some people get caught up in the healing, let's heal, everything's healing. I'm like, yeah, well, yes, and also fuck that because you've got a future and your future better light up your fucking day and get out of bed for it, right? Because if you're sitting there and you're just dwelling on healing all the time, but at the same time, ship ain't selling nowhere if it doesn't have fucking sales that are orderly. So, yes, so it's like do take care of all that shit first it's like make your bed and then go out make your house and then go out and try to run your neighborhood right have your shit in order so um the indigenous medicines i would say go to where the indigenous are and go to where is reputation and safety and you feel safe or if that's your choice that's on that's on the back of you to go down that rabbit hole if it's yours and jesse gould has plenty of information on heroic hearts foundation you can find it's heroichearts.org you find all the information there he leads that. You can find New York Times articles on him talking about it. And there is no shortage of information now about this. And the only people that are truly avoiding these sort of spaces now are people who are just deeply fucking scared to find out about themselves. You know, deeply scared. Look for every excuse in the world and validation for them to be fearful, and that's okay. But, you know, I wouldn't fucking ask for fighting instruction and counsel for someone who um, who's never even put boxing gloves on before because it was too scary. You know, like, fuck your opinion matter to me. So it's like, you know, just have that open have that open mind. And even if I just plant, plant like a bit of a seed for the thought in there and you do what you need to do. And the other thing is starting to become legal in the US as a start point to do legal therapy with, I think, MDMA and psilocybin. And I think that's a great place to start. Like, you, you go, go there and you... you you feel safe. You're in a clinical environment. It's legal. You've gone through the right channels, and it's and it, and it creates that net that you need to feel safe to go through those therapies that are now that are now being legalized or illegal in 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 some states. And I think that's a great place to start there. And then the second one is stem cells is are fucking remarkable, right? And the sheer fact that they're not mainstream and legal in America is criminal and fucking insane. Um. And which is what I'm trying to change, right? Jesse's got the psychedelic side. I'm trying to work through this side pretty aggressively too, unapologetically. And 
In America, you can do injections local, but you can't do systemic. And I, this is the crazy thing. I've got, there's so much clinical evidence on it. Every time I talk to a doctor or whatever, because I'm not, you know, I'm not going to talk from a medical expertise here because I can't, I'm not, I'm not a doctor in any capacity of this, but there's enough clinical evidence, correlated evidence on this success. Every time someone, someone reaches out to a, um, to a clinic or asks me to go, Hey Nick, where could I go? Whatever. We're, we're as good, we're as trusted. And I'm like, well, what's the conditions first? And they give me something obscure and I'm like, fuck, all right. And I'm going to be honest, every single fucking time they come back with like some clinical evidence or trials that says it's this percentage and the percentage is in like the 90s of, of high success. It always seems to move the fucking needle. And if it doesn't, it's probably you've been in someone's brain or it's not physical, something else, right? Um, doing it in the US is very limiting in the number you can use of stem cells. And then obviously abroad is, is um, in places like Mexico, Colombia, um, and Panama. And there's some doctors and people really leading the way and there's plenty of institutes around now. And you can even get FDA certified stem cells that would otherwise be used in America, but because they're systemic, they have to be shipped to those countries and then American doctors administer them there. Fucking retarded. Problem is because of that and these processes and the, the limitations on all this and the tiptoeing around and the experimental, it's still very expensive because it hasn't become like scaled like the T model forward style, right? Where it's become an, an economic version available to everyone. And I think that's bullshit. I'm not really willing to wait 10 years or so for my brethren to take these medicines commonly because. There's a measurable quantity of life, quality of life here. And I'm trying to get it well within five, say five years or more of this becoming so fucking common in, in the five eyes community that um, that one of the dominoes will fall from the militaries or the VAs. And then I will shame the others um, into, into expediting this through their systems as well. And the way I'm doing that is um, I'm uh, I'm raising funds. Um, now I've got all the systems and everything in place for the tax write-off and based out of the US um, to essentially get um, get enough. And I'm talking, I'm taking the guys at the top of the list broken because they move the needle. As far as data goes, far better. So this isn't something that people could reach out to me and go, hey, Nick, can you treat me? It's like, no, 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 I, I can't. It's too expensive to treat that many people, right? I need to treat the very comprehensively busted guys to move the needle the most and correlate the best data to get this data in front of congressmen, parliamentarians, senators, whoever, and get it forced down the fucking necks of the these members, um, decision, legal decision makers of the country whose job is to do to to pass these things and expedite these things in the interest of soldiers and uh and servicemen and emergency services and i think it's um the, i'm just going to correlate all that get it into their hands and also get it in the hands of the public and let them force it down their throat as well and that's that's essentially what i'm trying to do i'm trying to get regenerative medicines on track because i think measuring everything by suicide is bullshit where's the quality of life for the, the veteran who can't pick up his kid you know or tbi who can't drive a car because he's TBI, because of his, his brain fog and his, his attention, he's just taking too many IEDs to the to the 
the brain. Um, and not when there's medicines out there because veterans, guys, like they can't afford it. You can't ask someone to drop their whole disability pension for a year instead of using it with their family. They're using it. They can't work because they're fucked and they can't throw it all at some treatment protocol down in Colombia or Mexico or whatever. It might even be more than that, to be honest, because a lot of the guys are so comprehensively busted. It won't be one treatment that does it successfully. It might be several. It'd be far more expensive than the average average civilian. Um, and yeah, that's, that's essentially what I'm doing. That's, that's the, that's, that's why overseas has to be done at this point until America will start doing it locally. When they start doing it locally, eventually it'll be in the insurances and it'll be available to the civilian populace at a very cheap cost. And I hope they start using it as preventative medicine for everyone. Putting out fires before they become out of control, right? Absolutely. Well, you talked about stem cells, you talked about, you know, your push. So tell me about Warrior Refit Foundation, who, you know, who would be eligible, you touched on the most broken and a lot of people listening, I'm sure just want to support our veterans. Now they have transitioned out. And now we are in pseudo peace times at the moment. So essentially, um, essentially, I'm going to I'm gonna have the. I've got a few people on the short list, right? That are they're extremely um, fucked up, and ethically, they've got to be distanced from me. It's almost got to be like a scattergun approach, so that it's not like helping my mates. You know, it's got to be, which is a shame. But it's like you know, to me. But it's like it has to be done for ethical purposes, like that, right? And it's got to be people that go through um, that are kind of on that list, because I can't be seen here to dangle a carrot in front of people that I can't help. The cost is just too high. It's it's about getting. Um, you couldn't reach out to me and get on it. I, I will leave that completely entirely to doctors to make those decisions right and seek them because it's like I just it'll be dangling a carrot in front of an infinite number of people that I just couldn't help. But as far as helping goes, you I've got the whole entire fucking cart ready. Not because I want to run a foundation. To be honest, it's not. It's you know like running a Running an organization like that isn't something that that that, that really lights it, like lights up my my heart because I really have to deal with that many broken people. It's not it's not something that I really want to suffer through. To be honest, but it's my fucking duty because I accidentally stumbled across this and went through it and know that know it works, know the power of it. It's my fucking duty. Junior and brethren and everyone that I serve with and and all the nations that I fought alongside over there. By the way. American helicopter pilots came in every fucking time. I didn't see a goddamn Australian helicopter pilot once over there. They came in, dropped us off in the ship, picked us up in the ship, came in when they jeopardized their career because they were told not to. Um, kind of owe it to these guys. And um, basically, I've got the entire cart ready to get this happening. And they just got approval of the 501c3 from the IRS, which means it's a tax write-off the other day. So essentially, I'm. I need the horse. I need the money. And I'm asking guys for money, and I don't care if it's a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, whatever. They don't give a shit. Missing from their bank account. Go to the website, which is warriorrefit.com, and throw it, throw it in there. It could be pocket change. It could be fifty cents. I don't give a shit. Throw, throw whatever the hell you can, because the quicker I, I get this done, the quicker it's available for fucking everyone. Just aggressively ramming 
correlated medical data in front of the people who make decisions and in front of the public until they demand this shit. And essentially we can, we can save five years of suffering and we can work all the way back to Vietnam vets. Christ, if this is alive, the Korea and World War II vets, we can work on them too. This isn't something that's like a compromised age. I mean that that's that's raised the tempo a little bit as far as the optimism and and the healing and you know the mm-hmm. uptick of your journey. But as we round off, um, firstly, before I even get there, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't you um, get a, another TBI from trying to defend a woman not too long ago? Oh yeah, yeah. I um when I was recovering from a fucking a um. When I was recovering from the mental health stuff, actually, I, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go social or anything, but my best mate was having some marital issues and kind of pleaded with me. He's like, please come and have a drink with me. And that's the worst thing about vets, right? You're, you're, it's like someone's in a hole that you're willing to go further in another hole to help them. You help each other and you always, you kind of keep pulling each other back into the hole. And uh, I had a few beers with him, have a chat. And then as I walked out of the bar to get in an Uber, some guy, struck some woman in the street and they walked up and tried to intervene and then a third party come out and um what we call king hit king hit me in the side of my head from the rear left hit me in the temple and i pretty much unconscious immediately um as far as the homicide detective who watched the footage um said and he said you spun he goes if you'd he goes, if you'd spun 15 degrees more or less, he goes, you'd be dead or unconscious because your shoulder broke the fall miraculously. He goes, and this is my job because there's so much night violence in Australia. Knife night, like as in midnight violence in Australia. He goes, they have homicide detectives dedicated to it because so many kids die from just, they call it in Australia, it's a thing. It's like called coward punching. It's where you, or a king hit. It's where you throw all your weight into an unsuspecting victim with a punch to the head. Um, and anyway, yeah, it almost killed me. And so, yeah, that was a another um, unnecessary TBI in my life as I came to in an ambulance being rushed to hospital trying to understand what the fuck was going on because it was, like, bleeding out. Um, and, again, and then again, you know, I'd do it all again. It's the right thing to do. Well, we spoke before. Um, this is what's so sad is this is one of the scenarios that deters people from stepping in. But this pendulum has swung so far that people seem to be afraid to step in at any time. They're more than happy to pull out their cell phone and record you getting your ass kicked, but they won't turn around to the crowd and say, are we going to fucking stop this or are we just going to all watch? So it's, you know, it's this kind of cowardice, these king punches, these king hits um, that we see, you know, and in England now we've got this fucking knife crisis. And, you know, then there was that stabbing in France where that... You know, psychotic man was killing children, stabbing children in a play park. Um, what's your What's your take on that? You literally were the victim of, you know, a, a king hit. When you look at all the the inaction around the world, and you just said you would do it again, just kind of talk to me about that through your lens. Yeah, that's a, man. That's an interesting question because I I think. Um. I think we've killed healthy masculinity in society, right? I think we're doing a damn well good job to try to crush it. There's no highlighting of it. It's only defaming. But there is a very healthy masculine out there and maybe we should be 
promoting that in some regards, right? Because there is a duty to protect those that it's our duty to protect. It could be someone who's just more vulnerable, right? Whether it's a, a young woman getting struck by her aggressive and violent partner, or it's a, it's a kid, or you know whatever it is, and I, I think that should be normalised. That you know, anything necessary for the charm of evil is for good and to do nothing, right? Um, then I, I think there's power in numbers. You know, the wolf is not stronger than the pack. Like there was, there was a good twenty people around watching me go into this, um, with approach this guy. And from the video footage and the scenario, no one did fucking anything. None. Police was like, you were literally the only man who intervened. And that guy is not, and his buddy, not going to try to do anything um, if there is a pack that stands up against him. And and I think maybe, I think maybe then rather than just shitting on masculinity all the time, there is a very healthy masculinity because that guy is a very damn well good example of unhealthy masculinity, aggressive, uncontrolled, beating women, beating people vulnerable. And I get that's the one people are scared of, right? But there is one out there and the majority of men, they step in and, and own that of doing the right fucking thing as men. And I don't just mean just men, to be honest. I know a lot, like a lot of the women that serve in the combat calls are very masculine. Like they've taken a very heavy masculine approach to life, right? They're generally not the, 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 the free flowing dancing in the fields, feminine. They're the, they've taken on that. So it doesn't have to be man or woman, but I believe it needs that, that healthy masculine needs to be upheld again, regardless of the fucking consequences. You could have jailed me, could have done whatever if that turned out differently. And I'd do it again. And, and every time in my life where I've had a situation where there's a giant fucking conundrum or something like that, I always look back and ask myself, given all the circumstances I knew at that time, would I have done that again? And if the answer is yes, and I'm like, I don't give a fuck of what the consequences were, it was the right thing. Yeah. Well, I think this is the thing. This is what I tell my little boy. Um, I say little, he's, he's freaking almost my height now, but he's built like his dad. He's, he's slimmer built. He's going through high school at the moment. And, you know, I hear some of the, the fucking assholes in the school, you know, the, the baseball players with their gay ass mullets, you know, that all they do is throw it at, you know, a ball at a stick and somehow think that that's the, it makes them the king of the world. But, you know, some of the jeering that he gets from being skinny, being a runner, whatever. But I've always told him, look, you know, if someone's being victimized, don't go waiting in there on your own. Turn to the crowd and say, are you just going to fucking stand here or are we actually going to do something and help? Because I think a lot of people are paralyzed by that moment. And the moment you can actually spur them into action, the same way as, I mean, there's numerous, numerous videos of a car rolling on top of someone or someone getting stuck, you know, in, in a subway, between the subway train and, and a rail, um, the platform, excuse me. And some of these actually happen in Australia, you know, and then all of a sudden one person goes up there and puts their back against it and tries to lift and then the other people follow suit. So I think this is the issue. There's no fucking leadership in this country. In the UK, I don't know about Australia, so I won't speak about them. The last one in New Zealand clearly did a 180. Um, 
So we need the people to unify. We need the people to lead. We need people just to assign a job. And I've had this as a, a firefighter and a paramedic. I've been on calls where my partner has just fucking lost his shit or her shit and is a chicken with their head cut off. But the moment you grab them by the lapels and say, look, I need you to do A, B, and C, then they're they're back on track again. So this is the big thing. It's not about thinking that you're Chuck Norris waiting in there with your two Uzis. It's about, like you said, corralling that group so that you can outforce whatever is going on in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, um, there's a, I think there's, going back to, I think there's a lack of that, of encouragement and and defending that in many ways, right? Because it's like, whatever we're doing, we're doing it fucking wrong. And I don't think it's going in a better direction per se, right? Australia's election is a circus as well, by the way. It seems to be running in the first world of the British Empire pretty pretty heavily. Um, and I think it's like we're, you know, there, there might be too many just um, too much avoidance of like, of really, like politicians really avoid having the hard talks or really avoid any real change or anything. Everyone's like self preservation orientated right rather than the preservation of the community yeah i think i think we've, we've really done a lot of damage to um a lot of that necessary um healthy sort of masculine behavior i think in the last in the last 20 years at least right you know, there's been a bit of a change and I, I don't know if it's too far gone, but I think it's it's damn well um, damn well necessary at this point. You know, like I, th- I think there's just, just I don't know what kids see in schools and what they think is normal now um, in the way that they respond to these things and respond to these situations. Um, and maybe they feel powerless and then those kids are going to grow up to adults and then those adults aren't going to act. And... Uh, I think that has probably very global strategic level consequences, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of the term toxic masculinity, I think where there is truth is kind of like, as you said, the one that sucker punched you on the street, the one that was slapping around a woman. That's clearly toxic masculinity, buying into that two-dimensional facade of, you know, the emotionless man that, you know, slaps a woman, for example. But the yin-yang that is a man or a woman is soft and hard. You know, walk softly, carry a big stick. One of the the areas that I've really leaned into now, and I'm I'm doing um, a second one, is is writing. I wrote a book about three years ago now. I'm writing a fiction. Hell yeah. And that is where I'm kind of pouring my creativity that I didn't even think I had at all, zero. Um, years and years ago, I went through drama school. Now, I am an absolutely fucking horrible actor, but it led me to the world of stunts, which I was, you know, the physicality, the martial arts, that was kind of where I seemed to do well. Talk to me about your new kind of creative path in acting and comedy. Yeah, I, um, I, when I was a kid, I loved, as I said, I loved all things war, like war films and whatnot, right? Loved it, the two of them together. And 
And then by chance, when I was in high school, I went into the acting classes just through luck. And I was like, I was pretty good at it and I enjoyed it, right? It kind of ignited my soul. It was the only ever artistic thing that I ever enjoyed that I really had a flair or a passion for that I didn't really need to think or remember or it just kind of came naturally, kind of like the history and the war and, stuff and, uh, and, and that I was talking about. And now, I um, I I I started working with this um this group right of it's community for men, and uh, pr- promoting a healthy, like a really healthy masculine. And through doing that, and the community of the rising tide lifting all ships, um, it's kind of helps guys orientate themselves and approach their fears and where they should be and what they should be doing and kind of getting them onto a purpose or a mission. Right. Um, and when I went through that, cause it was like, well, I can't work in this space if I haven't been through this program and involved myself. And I got to the end of it and I realized that I'm like, I found in myself that I was missing a huge artistic creation point in myself. And I'd always been bearing this forever this 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 interest for art i love writing like yourself but the art that i was always just had a flair for was was the acting stuff so rather than just sitting on it and hiding and one day you know or when i do this i'll do it do that or when i you know the the when i fuck that just all in follow your heart uh, you know whatever you think in the breadcrumbs of god and I started doing some really intense zero half ass starting in private classes of, of acting. And uh, I get it. Like, I love the emotional scenes and all those things because I've been through so much random shit of every level that acting is kind of like, it's two layers to it, right? There's there's the acting and you say, oh, there's a, he's a bad actor. It's because there's like, they're trying to pretend and, and act per se. The other one is when they can, they find such deep empathy of the character in that position and understanding the character and what that character might've been through, through their life, whatever it would be in those circumstances and what they're feeling in that high stress and moment or whatever it is that you're able to express that in sort of a fictional scenario to the point where people buy in because they buy into the fact that you've bought in like fuck you know like and you can it's not many there's many great actors where you're like Matthew McConaughey or whatever where you're like in his latest stuff you're like holy fuck like what part of him doesn't think he's actually in that scenario and that's what I love about the art and that's the journey I found myself in at the moment in deep pursuit of cultivating that art and um I that's 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 the third thing that I think is is missing that I mentioned um when veterans do this healing physiologically, mentally, soul, it's all one giant complex thing. There's like kind of two realms there that I've always said is really powerful for, for veterans and their orientation. But the third, I think the third is, is redefining the path of their life and the journey and something bigger than them and pursuing self actualization. Um, and I don't know how they do it necessarily. Um, 
we do it with like a, a community of men where they all lift each other up and learn from each other and go through like an instructional program to start conquering little fears and working to medium fears into bigger fears and finding that healthy masculinity and restoring their family and having uncomfortable conversations and getting rid of all that shit that's weighed you down that you've ignored through the years, right? Like some of that low-level healing and some of that growing to the point where you can start getting through all the nonsense, nothing that tells you back and then finding a mission that's worthy of you and your future. Because all the healing is great, as I said about the ship. The ship's great once it's got sails and everything. But if you've got no fucking port or somewhere else to sail to, ship's basically useless. It's just going to fucking rot. It's going to repeat maintenance. going to do fucking nothing. And, you know, as you've heard that saying, it's like, that's what ships were, were built for. So it's like, it's about getting them orientated on something that ignites their soul again, especially veteran servicemen, um, emergency services. Like once you've had a mission in your life, the curse is that you know what a fucking mission looks like and a path. You know what it's like being on that fucking path where every day is bigger than you. It's fucking powerful. It ignites your soul. You want to get out of bed. You know what your journey and your purpose here in this world is. And when guys like I did have that pulled from underneath you in one day where you lose your, your, you lose your orientation in life, your mission, your purpose, your reason to exist, French call it, you're, you lose your identity and you lose who you are. And they, a lot of the pressure and losses is like, oh, am I ever getting this back again? And the, they finding that is, is the challenge. And that's what I'm trying to really work on presently is, is finding a way to gift that in a community with, with, through the cultivation of work with other men. And what I did, I went through it and I lit, I dug up everything else till there was nothing else to look at. than in the depths of myself, the acting that I'd been fucking ignoring and too cowardice to confront for a long time. And now that's the journey I'm on and I'm going balls out like everything else I've ever done, throwing everything at it. And it's, even if it takes 30 years, it's the cool thing about art. It's net up. There is no finished product. You just keep fucking creating and going. And, and I'm really loving that creative artistic side of myself that I'd never seen before or never given, never given it breath. Well, that sense of purpose is something that comes up over and over again in the transition. Even when I look back at my fire service career, they, my second department, Anaheim, California, was that ultimate cohesive crew. Well, station one, truck one, for those couple of years. And I chased that even within my own profession with different departments, different stations, and never refound that. And it was only really when I transitioned out to focus on this that I realized, oh, this is actually amplifying the mission because I'm in control. I don't have to deal with bureaucracy and red tape and you know, being forced to be assigned with a different crew where, you know, you're swimming upstream trying to even, you know, make positive changes. And now all of a sudden you manifest that manifest this. So there's, you know, I think refining that new purpose. And, and if you're a selfless soul, understanding that you can serve in a thousand other ways outside of uniform, and it might be entertaining, it might be making someone laugh. Talked earlier in the conversation about that sense of numbness. Now, as you sit here in 2023, and I would I would argue as an actor, you're trying to really tap in 
to emotion, the opposite of numbness. Where are you mm-hmm. sitting mentally now? I've I've got to be honest. I'm I'm like I've taken stem cells five times. I've really got to I meditate every fucking day. I go to the gym pretty much every fucking day. Um, I've got a mission orientation that it's just like ignites me to go towards. Um, I gotta be honest, I feel pretty fucking good in that realm. And to touch on what you mentioned about going through those emotions, expressing it, the body keeps the score wrote about that, that all these guys from, I think it was, and I'm pretty sure it was veterans, exactly the case study group. That was a lot in that book, by the way. That book is not to be consumed, read without the consumption of vodka. Holy fuck. It's a, it's a pretty heavy book. Like You've got to read that in several sessions because you, if you want to do that in a day, you might have to put yourself in a ward just for your own safety. It comes at you pretty heavy. Um, but one of the things at the end was like what they found studying, with, I'm pretty sure it was veterans with all PTSD and whatnot, was as they, they recommended acting. Because it was a way of expressing the unexpressed emotions and stuff and processing and understanding them from a third party and character's point of view. That there was really cool. And for me, it's been an awesome journey to try to understand life through the lens of other people and to process these emotions that I might, I should have processed at some point in my life, but I never have. And I can, I can do that through these characters to the full extent. And that there is uh that there has become beautiful. Like I, I love comedy, right? Comedy is so easy and so awesome. Cause it's like, imagine getting paid every day to do this or read these scripts. These, these writers are fucking hilarious. Like, and you trying to hold your shit together and, and do your own little spin and play on it. So much goddamn fun. But the real work is in trying to empathize with another character's point of view. And it gives you a greater appreciation for humans and the journey that they go on, right? Of wherever they've come from or whatever capacity. That there is that there is really enjoyable. Beautiful. Well, Nick, I I want to say thank you. We have chatted for two and a half hours, you know, been all over the map in this conversation, but I think that is such a beautiful place to finish this. I mean, you talk physiologically through stem cells, you talk psychologically and spiritually through psychedelics, and then here we are on the third arm that you're talking about, which is the creativity side. So I want to thank you so, so much, not only for just being generous with your time, but also being vulnerable, as I've talked about a lot. The other side of that masculinity is understanding that there's femininity or or gentleness in each of us, the the warriors. And so when someone from, for example, Australian SAS talks about their struggles, that has so much power because it debunks that I'm a man, I don't need to feel bullshit that a lot of us were raised on. So I just want to thank you so, so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. um, Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And and yeah, I love to be uh I love to be an open book. I love it. I'm either I'm either, you know, integrity is when your words, your actions, your thoughts are all aligned. And I just put it out there into the world exactly for what it is without trying to gloss over it in any any fashion. It just it is what it is. I'm a and I'm a big fan of it. And also, I don't think anyone gets helped if we don't talk about this shit. All right, given an alternate point of view and a way to process life. Like I I love I love what you said. I, I've become a complete like warrior in a garden, per se. You know, instead of gardener of war. If you don't think I won't take up fucking arms and go go to fucking war and, you know, 
do the do the work that has to be done, then then you'd be kidding yourself. But I'll fucking I'll cultivate that garden and uh, and a family or whatever else, right? Like I, it, it, there is that balance to that to that masculinity. There is that healthiness, and I think um, I think you know getting to it at this stage in my life is going to make the rest of life very very fucking rewarding. So thank you for having me on. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about the foundation um, and to talk about Jesse's work as well. Um, guy's a goddamn rock star of what he's doing. And uh, thank you for giving a voice to everyone that comes on this show. Mm-hmm.